welcome to episode 283 with my guest Julie L. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out. You can fill out surveys. Maybe we'll read your survey on the show. You can uh, browse the forum. You can join the forum and post in there. You can read uh, blogs or guest blogs. You can donate to the show. Uh, all kinds of stuff at the website. Go, so go check it out. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at uh, mentalpod. And uh want to remind you that I'm coming to Oakland July 20th and 21st for uh, two shows. Um, uh, re- I'm recording um, Jamie DeWolf and um, Glenn Washington. Glenn is the uh, host of Snap Judgment, uh, the podcast Snap Judgment. And Jamie is also a guest on it quite frequently. Um, and that is being sponsored by East Bay Express. So um, if you just go to the East Bay Express um, website, and which I guess is eastbayexpress.com, uh, you can find more information there. But I, w- I will put a link um, on the website for this episode, a link to, uh, to buy tickets. Um, what did I mention? Uh, I wanted to mention something. I can't remember what it is. So uh, this is maybe the second week of uh, taking Adderall, and uh, so far, so far, so good. I have no desire to take um, any more of it. Um, I'm not even taking the higher dose that I could if I if I wanted to. And uh, that that desire at four o'clock in the afternoon to just crawl into bed and shut the world out um, is not there and it's it's really nice and ironically my anxiety is lower um, especially when I play hockey a lot of times I get anxious about the outcome of the uh, of the game and uh, I've noticed that I don't really have that so so far uh, so far so good uh, I want to read a couple of surveys before we get to the uh, the interview with Julie and um, you know it's weird there's this kind of cool um, I don't know, synchronicity that happens sometimes when I put the surveys together where a theme will develop. And there were a lot of surveys that had to do with borderline personality disorder. And as you'll hear in Julie's um, episode, it sounds like uh, her mom might have had that as uh, as well. Um, so people that, that want to hear more about borderline personality disorder, I think this would be a, a good episode for you to... Um, hear some more about people's experiences. Uh, this is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Anxiety Won't Let Me Choose a Name. Love it. Uh, about his anxiety, he writes, Anxiety drives me to keep moving forward through life, but depression robs me of any sense of purpose or accomplishment. Wow. That is profound. That is such a great way of putting it. Um, and what an awful combination, the one-two punch of anxiety and depression. Um about sex addiction, he writes, is it sex addiction or just the validation I seek because I cannot find it in myself? That, to me, is the core of, of sex addiction or love addiction. Um, it is, uh, those two things are not mutually exclusive uh, by any means. This was filled out by a guy who calls himself, uh, himself Stefan. And about his depression, he writes, trading in my high-profile uh, career-building job 
for days in bed by way of a mental breakdown. Fuck, I am a failure. No, you're not a failure. Um, you're experiencing an illness that is beyond your control. And one of the worst things you can do and society can do is to blame you for not willing your way through uh, an illness. You, we don't blame diabetics for not being able to produce the right amount of insulin. Well, if you can't produce the right amount of serotonin, dopamine, and all the other good things, um, that's that's what happens. All you can do is try to get help. Uh, about his PTSD, picking a fight with my mother to finally tell her that she fucked me up, and all she can say is, your dad was worse. A uh, highlight from his life, spending 30 hours straight at the casino, no sleep, barely any food, dragging myself through hand after hand. It finally dawns on me that this is a terrible use of time. Only thing is, I don't have any better use of my worthless time. Buddy, um, you, this is not who you are. This is, this is how you are coping with feeling overwhelmed and probably having a brain chemistry that, that might need some some tweaking, uh, you know, or some type of tools to, to, to help you cope. But um, don't, don't judge. Don't judge yourself. We don't judge ourselves for having the flu. And uh, mental illness is a flu uh, of the brain. And addiction is a flu of the brain and the body and the spirit. Uh, I just kind of grossed myself out right there. Um, by the way, I have on a big white robe. This is uh, filled out by Sarah. And she writes about her depression. It feels like I'm already tired tomorrow. That is so fantastic. That is so fantastic. Oh, my God. Uh, about experiencing racial uh, or cultural bias. When I was 14, just after 9-11, the boys called me a terrorist. When I grew boobs and had a decent face, I became an exotic conquest. About her anger issues. If I don't react with that biting, belittling, and insulting tone that makes you feel stupid... How will you know how hurt, lonely, and unloved I feel? Uh, and then a snapshot from her life. I have such identity confusion. Former Muslim, now, now Protestant, but also a free-thinking, pretty liberal person whose depression has not been healed by faith, but by therapy and time. I contract as a graphics-slash-motion uh, designer for a megachurch. Snapshot, arguing with a producer, a big no-no, five minutes before start of the Easter show. I heard that an art piece has been added uh, of an actor giving a monologue about throwing away his uh, anxiety and depression medication and instead trusting God. I politely beg and plead to remove or rewrite the monologue. Being surrounded by people who are genuinely confused why there is a problem. I am the only one concerned. People are looking at me, shaking their heads. I'm being told I'm acting crazy and to calm down. Trust your leaders, Sarah. And just because you have depression does not make you an expert on mental illness, Sarah. I completely imploded, cried for two days straight, and was asked to take a break from my position. The struggle is I always feel misplaced. I always feel misunderstood and crazy. I am genuinely always confused about who I am and what I stand for. Thank you for sharing that. And they are wrong. They are just simply ignorant about it. And fucking high five from the mental health community for, to you for standing up for us. And you should be proud of yourself. You should be really proud of yourself. High five. Um, 
And then this is filled out by Stars Can't Shine Without Darkness. And uh, she has borderline personality disorder. And she writes, it can't really be summed up in a sentence. You are completely aware of how fucked up you are and recognize every time you are having a BPD moment. But there isn't anything you can do to stop yourself from destroying yourself and everything around you. Snapshot from her life. Something small triggers a deep emotional wound or intense emotion that sparks an internal inferno. I'm left feeling like I am burning alive and that something is squeezing my soul. The pain is so intense that I tell myself the pain might actually kill me and I can't go on like this. I'm convinced that I will feel this way for the rest of my life and the only way to stop this feeling is to end it. I'm on my bathroom floor, struggling to sit with this feeling. I pour all of my meds into my hand and fight off the urge to just fucking swallow all of them. I put them back into the bottle and instead cut myself five times. A few minutes later, I am back in my bathroom with a handful of pills. Again, I put them back in the bottle and instead cut myself five, six, seven times. I do this another two or three times until I am so emotionally exhausted from fighting off my demons. I climb into bed. I wake up the next day and the feeling has disappeared and the grip on my soul released. I take a shower, get dressed for work, and go on like nothing ever happened. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job Mental illness is convincing myself I'm so alone. Why hypervigilance I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. And you're just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house. And you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. <laughs> I'm here with Julie L., um, who I've known you for a little bit, but this is the first time we've uh, we've met in person. Yeah. Um, we've uh, we've corresponded a bit because our stories have some similarities, some overlap. Although in many ways yours is very very different. You're uh, French Canadian, yeah. Descent. Uh, you moved to the states when you were twenty. Yeah, twenty something um, in two thousand. Yeah, two thousand. Um, and you come from Chaos Central. <laughs> I, guess, I guess. Uh, from, from what you've shared with me. Slightly dysfunctional. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, I would, I would say so. Uh, where do we begin, uh, your story? Well, let's talk about what life was like in, uh, in Canada. Okay. In the house or in the country? Either one. <laughs> uh, you're from Quebec? Yeah, I'm from Quebec. Quebec yeah. City, actually. Uh, which so, is, I'm so sorry you lost your uh, I the know, Nordiques. Don't, don't bring it up. I'm still bitter about <laughs> it. I think if if there's another expansion team, uh, I think they're high uh, on the list. God, if so. Vegas gets one, I, I'm going to boycott the Yeah, that's the just not fair. It's not. No. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, um, let's see. Well... I'm an only child, um, and 
my parents, I, I don't have a lot of memories of when I was younger. Um, I think my first memory of my mom, at least, <laughs> I'm reverting back to the, <laughs> the Canadian way of saying mom, <laughs> um, was of her leaving, leaving my dad and I behind. I think I was probably around four. Like, I, in my head, I can see her walking away. Um, and she was going to uh, a family friend to stay there, which was in walking distance for an adult, but was too far for me to go. And, and so you lived with your dad from, from that point on? Or? Yeah, so I, I stayed with my dad in the house where, you know, mm-hmm. she just left. Like as a divorce left? She just left. Oh, okay. And um, then I, the other... And, rem- and when you say left, you mean moved out? Yeah, but like, I don't know if I was comprehending. Like, she had a bag and she left. Yes, okay, that's what it... Yeah, yeah. Um, and she wasn't taking me with her. And then the second memory I have of her is of her coming back. And I remember sort of like watching her cautiously, sort of being a little happy, but not really. And I remember thinking very clearly, I can never trust you again. Um, and in my head, that trip that she took was a week, maybe two. But I just talked to that friend recently that you know, where she went. Um, and she said, no, she stayed with us for three months. So that's a long time. She was extremely depressed. Uh, like she could, she could barely walk, you know? So she said, uh, your mom went to see you, you know, as, as much as she could, but it wasn't that much. So now I think what happened was she must have come and seen me and then left again and then come back and left again. So, you know, what I learned was don't be happy when she comes back because she's just going to leave again, which she did. And so from that friend's house, when she was well enough, um, she took her own apartment, and that's the first time my parents got separated. Uh, Your mom, if you could describe her in a sentence or two <laughs> and your dad in a sentence or two oh, that's hard I'll say um, my mom is a and you say is even though oh, she's, yeah, sorry. she's no longer she was yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, why do you think you do that I don't know um, because in, like all those behaviors when I think about them, they're still real. And so she's still a bitch, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a legacy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, I'll say she was uh, probably, she probably had borderline personality disorder, but definitely narcissistic um, and used me to fulfill her needs or ideas of what she should be or whatever. And then my dad, my dad's a little bit more complicated because my dad 
truly loved me, but he also had a really hard upbringing. And so he had a lot of issues. He had control issues and um, he was an alcoholic, so he could go into rages. Uh, but somehow that was a lot easier to deal with than the more subtle ways of my mom. That's interesting because most people would think, and I totally understand what you're saying, um, because it's the it's the brainwashing, the covert stuff that I think really is so hard to unwind once we become uh, adults. Um, it, it's easy. It, it's almost like there's a, once you understand um, somebody's sickness, um, it's it's easier to know where the boundaries are. Yeah. But with somebody um, like your mom, it's part of what I think they thrive on is crossing boundaries. Yeah. Getting away with crossing boundaries. Yeah. And I don't believe any of it is conscious on their on no, their part. No, but you know, it's it's interesting that you didn't say my mom had a terrible upbringing because nobody with borderline personality disorder grows up in a safe and nurturing yeah. environment. But do you think it's because the damage that your mom caused is so much more still with you today than the damage your your dad caused or because his was more passive and hers was more aggressive? Um Yeah, she's asked me that a lot, my mom. She used to say You'll forgive your dad everything, but I can't do anything. You were the pearl of my life, and you're so cold to me. Yes. Yeah. But my mom, so I thought about it a yes. lot. <laughs> my mom is so resentful of uh, my dad. Yeah. And my explanation has always been, yeah, but my dad loves me. My dad was my rock. My dad was where I felt safe. And even though he would throw a fit if I broke a plate while doing the dishes and call me an incompetent whatever, and it hurt, mm -hmm. it also felt like it was exterior to me in a way. And also my dad would let me talk back at him, you know, so I would tell him to shut his mouth and, you know, so it was more of a back and forth and also... Yeah, with him, it was like an instant it was mad and then he wasn't. And then he would do a lot of things for me. You know, you could tell he cared. So there were moments of connection with your dad that, that weren't there with your mom. Yeah, lots, lots. I have a lot of memories of him when I was a kid. Like, you know, he would run around the house like on all fours and I'd be on his back or mm -hmm. he'd do that thing where he lifts your belly with his legs like mm -hmm. a flying airplane or we watch hockey night in Canada every Saturday <laughs> together, you know, <laughs> eating so chips. Jealous. No, that was like, it was good, yeah. you know, but I have very few memories of a good time with my mom. Would it be fair to say that your dad saw you as a person, whereas your mom saw you as an object? Or is that, is that going too far? Or is that me putting my own shit on you? <laughs> um, I don't know. Okay. I, you don't, you don't, yeah. You. No, I mean, I've thought about these things, but I don't really know. I haven't come to some sort of conclusion on that. Uh, but I do really feel like my mom, like whenever I was at her house, because my parents were separated, so they had a two weeks, two weeks schedule. 
And whenever I was at her house, if she would put her hand on my arm, I literally felt like everything inside of me was being sucked through that arm onto her until I was empty, but she was full of me, my <laughs> essence. <laughs> and, um, and then she could live. Once she's full again, then she can live, right? And then she would be happy and want to do things with me, like go to the movies, you know? I, I owe my love of, I'll say, cinema, <laughs> like mm. a snob, to her. But then if I chose to spend an evening with my friends instead of with her, then I was the cold-hearted bitch and how they're high and all the, those kind of things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I guess that's what I meant by the, the object, that it's, it's um, that person often becomes reduced to a, a ball of energy that this person feeds on. Oh, um, cause yes, then. When I, would, when I would leave my mom's um, apartment, I would feel like I needed to sleep forever. Yeah. Uh, and I would I would basically stay there as long as I could yeah. endure it. Yes. It was something to, visits were her, with her were something to endure. That's not to say that there weren't ever moments of levity and where we would laugh together or things like that. But the overwhelming um, vibe was one of her becoming more excited around me and me becoming more shut down. Yeah. And and that to me made me feel like an object, like I was a battery that 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 was jumping, yeah. that was jumping her. Yeah, kind of uh, like that. Yeah, yeah. like um, when I was old enough, around fourteen, to tell my parents, I don't want to be on the two weeks two weeks schedule anymore. I want to go wherever when I want. They agreed to it. My cycle would be, I would be at my mom's as long as I could take it. And then there would come a point where I just couldn't take it and I would just run to my dad's. And luckily they always lived within like biking distance of one another. And then I would stay at my dad's until I felt so guilty <laughs> that I had to go back to my mom's. And then I would stay there until I felt so bad that I had to run back to my safe house. I think that's. I think that sounds like a healthy uh, family unit. <laughs> I gotta say, I don't know what you're complaining about. I mean, about. I didn't say healthy. I yeah. said slightly dysfunctional. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that's what uh, makes a nice Christmas. Uh, oh God! Uh, just don't uh, even go there. A rotating dread. That that's uh, that's the holidays. Um, yeah, that's terrible. It's terrible that that uh, and that was adolescent you, or was mm -hmm. that childhood you? No. Uh, yeah. yeah, adolescent. Um, Let's talk about um, the boundaries uh, that your mom crossed and the things that you um, didn't give weight to until recently. Okay. Um, well, I guess I want to preface that by saying that uh, I never felt close to my mom. Like, I remember when I was maybe eight or something, like, wanting to brush her hair because I thought that that was a good child-mother moment together, but being really afraid of asking her if I could brush her hair. Like, it was something, like, that you can't ask or that um, she would realize that I wanted to have something nice and like you can't let people know 
what you want, you know? And, um, and she said yes, which I was surprised to, because I thought she would tell me no. And then I did it a little bit. It was super awkward. Uh, and then she was like, oh, you're pulling my hair. And I just stopped. And like, I never touch her again after that, you know? So, um, I'm going to start with saying that. And then growing up, there were, there was this thing she would do where if I was standing, uh, this is when I was 10 and probably before. So she would come up behind me, stand behind me and then cross her arms over my chest, you know, and rest her hands like pretty much on my chest, but I didn't have boobs or anything, but you know, and I always hated that. I hated it. And then right around 11, maybe I decided to tell her, you know, I don't, I don't want you to do that anymore. And then, of course, she says, what? You know, it's not, I'm your mom. It's not like, whatever, you don't even have boobs. But surprisingly, she didn't do it again. But, um, so that was the first time I realized that I had a gross feeling when my mom touched me, but I couldn't relate it to anything. You know, I just thought, I don't like it. You know, if it was another child, he would like it, but I don't like it. And I think society's uh, kind of, uh, don't really deal with the fact that a mother's touch can be unwanted. Um, you know, there's a lot of consciousness around dads being creepy, mm-hmm. um, but there just doesn't seem to be much much consciousness around that. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because it's often so covert or because it's not talked about so it's not on our radar? Both, I think. Yeah, because it's not talked about, that's for sure. And that's a problem. But the other reason, I think, is if if you see a mom rubbing the back of her child in, like, a loving way, and there's you think a little something is off, but your, your tendency is going to be to think, well, she just loves that child so much, right? And whatever. But if a dad did the same thing and you had that same feeling, you would think, oh, maybe this is something I should look into. But that doesn't happen, I think, with the mom. And I think the the vibe with which the mother oh my or the father yeah. is rubbing that child's back has everything to do with it. Because I've seen uh, parents, you know, scratch the back of their kid or you know, rub their back and it looks beautiful to me. It looks safe and like they're, you know, that touch with the right vibe is so important. I I think that's what's so confusing to kids is when it has that vibe that you can't put into words. Yeah. It's the kid usually winds up thinking the problem is me. Yeah. Or I'm just too sensitive. And it's usually reinforced by that narcissistic parent saying you're too sensitive. Yeah. Or what's the matter with you? Instead of saying, you know, what what what's going on? Let's yeah. talk about our let's talk about our feelings. Yeah, because I didn't realize that uh there were feelings or energy that could pass through the touch. You know, when I was younger I thought a touch is a touch, but now I know that the energy or the intention that you put when you touch your boyfriend isn't the same that when you touch, I don't know, my goddaughter. You know, I'm not going to rub her back the same way, but it's the same gesture. So now I know that. 
which makes like now I know that the way my mom was touching me, even if it was just on the arm or the back, she was putting a sexual energy into it, you know, and she was going to get that love gratification. And so, so I think, I think that's a great way of putting it is one gratifies the parent and the other comforts the child. Yeah. Yeah. It was never a comforting touch. Yeah. And I'm sure in your mom's mind, she thought it was comforting you. Probably. And just thought, and I'm also, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel like a good mother. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That It was all about convincing herself that she was a good mother, you know? <laughs> which, is, which is so sad because I'm sure your mom's intention, and, and if she did have borderline personality disorder, which you, you said you believe she did have, it's such an overwhelming disorder. Uh for people to live with because their feelings are so intense and they struggle with impulsivity and an emptiness inside them and wanting to be loved but terrified of intimacy at the same time. I mean, it is a nuclear, nuclear disorder. Yeah. And I used to have zero empathy for people with borderline personality disorder as where I have a lot of empathy for all the other disorders. But through your podcast, mainly... Uh, hearing women, mothers even, that have it and saying, you know, how hard it is. and But they, those people were also doing something to help themselves um, work through that so that they didn't have as much effect on their children. Yeah. And so I really admire that. And then it's easy to have empathy for someone like that because... They acknowledge that there's something wrong and they want to fix it. They're taking ownership of it. Yeah. My mom never, never, ever once took uh, ownership of what she did. We would write these letters, crazy letters, where she would always be accusing me of doing something to ruin our relationship. And I would write back and I, you know, I'd be all diplomatic and and say you know well i think you make me feel this way so maybe you could do this and never ever ever did she once say i'm sorry i make you feel that way or that wasn't my intention you know so it's hard to have empathy for someone like that it is and, and i think if you look at it from their point of view they're so trying to protect any chance of them being abandoned that they think that their defensiveness makes sense that if that if you can see the reasons why they did it, you won't abandon them. But in reality, all you really want is for your feelings to be validated. Yeah. You don't want it to become a court case. But yeah, I mean, my mom blamed my brother and I for um, her bad marriage. <laughs> right. Because you were there when she decided to get married. Uh <laughs> No, this was this was like uh, we we bought a cottage in the late 80s and she felt that my brother and I weren't doing our jobs around keeping the cottage clean, which I'm sure was entirely valid. But to, to then say that this is, you know, the reason why your dad and I aren't getting along. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and I didn't even realize at the time for some reason I still had that letter. I still have that letter around and uh and I picked it up and read it, and I was like, "Oh my god, I had, I had no idea. That's I had crazy. no idea." Um, so, the the uh, getting back to the um, the crossing of uh, boundaries. Oh yeah. And okay, so 
that's sort of the first things that I started being aware of. Then she would do other things that until really recently, I didn't even know were part of these patterns of behaviors, like you say. So, for example, she would always call me into the bathroom when she was peeing. Julie, come over here. I have something to say to you. And I was like, ugh. And I would just, of course, the bathroom door would be open. So I would just walk in there and then just stand facing her and she would talk about whatever, like completely unimportant stuff while she's peeing. And then she like lifts up her butt and she goes and wipes. And so I could see everything, you know, and then she gets up and she pulls up her pants and she keeps talking and that's it. But she did that a lot. And I, <laughs> I didn't even realize that parents don't really do that, you know. But it was such a normal thing. Or the other thing she would do also is call me in when she was taking a bath. So then I would see her completely naked, you know, washing. And then uh, a lot of times she did the bath thing when she was feeling depressed or anxious about something. So then I had to sit beside the bath and listen to all her woos, you know. So do you think it was a a, a sexual thing for her? Or do you think it was just a kind of a subtle hostility of I'm going to make you look at at this um, thing that should be private. I I didn't get a sexual vibe out of that. I always got the vibe that there is no separation between her and I. I see. So if you witness this really intimate thing with you with with, with me that there there there's nothing left unsaid between us. We're, we are one. Yeah, we are one. Like you and me, we're the same thing. You came from my womb, hands, my body, your body. It's all the same. There's no need for separation, mm -hmm. you know, or boundaries. Yeah. So she did that a lot. Uh, then as I grew older and I started hanging out with boys fairly young, which also I'm told is often a sign. Um, she completely got involved in it, <laughs> which at the time I was like, oh, it's cool because I get to do pretty much whatever I want and didn't realize that it was completely inappropriate. But for example, um, my boyfriend would come over to the house and then she would say, okay, kids, I'm going for a walk. I'll be back in an hour. Do you what you have to do? And then she'd leave the house. And so she made herself complicit of mm -hmm. it, right? Or That uh, last sentence of what she said just makes my skin crawl. Really? You, you do what you have to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's it, like if she had if she had just said um I have to go run some errands. Yeah. That to me wouldn't be weird. Yeah. Um, no, but she was doing it so that we could have sex. No, I know. And, yeah. but her, if she had, her intention was for that to happen, but she didn't portray it as that, that wouldn't be nearly an issue yeah. to me. The, the way do what you have to do yeah. is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. Like, yeah. Like she's inserting herself into oh, yeah, the situation. Yeah. Totally. Like one time. Uh, my boyfriend and I were in my room and we were allowed to have the door closed. And uh, this is all the same boyfriend. Mm -hmm. I was 14 and he was 14. And I walked out of my room to go to the bathroom and my mom was in the living room so she could see me. 
And she looked at me and she got like this twinkle in her eyes and this like smirk. And she was like, somebody's been having a good time. And I was just like, Ugh. and I just went to the bathroom and walked back to my bedroom, you know, and that's the kind of stuff that happened. Um, she would let us take baths together, you know, while she's preparing dinner. My boyfriend and I would be in the tub together and then she's like, okay, kids, dinner is ready. And so we'd come out and go have dinner. Do you think she saw herself kind of as an adolescent? Yeah. Because it really sounds like like the way two teenage girlfriends would be with each other. They go to the bathroom yeah. uh, with the other one yeah. there. They wink when the other one's getting laid. Yeah. Yeah, I also really feel like she was living her life through me, mm-hmm. you know, and I was getting loved, so, with my boyfriend, you know, so she was getting it by the by the band. And the bath thing, I never thought anything of it, really, until um, a few years ago, I had, I started therapy in Quebec, and my therapist asked me, what do you think your mom would have done if you had asked her to join you in the bathtub? And I had to stop and think about it. And he said, you know, uh, normally people don't have to stop and think about it. The answer is no. And I can't even tell you that she wouldn't have come in the bath with us. She might have. She certainly wouldn't have been like, oh, my God, no, that's completely inappropriate. Why are you saying that? You know, and so that was another hint that like boundaries were clearly being violated. Um. Then, as I grew older, at some point, what's the next thing? I had, when I was 18, I had a boyfriend who was 28, and he had a friend who was mid-30s, I think. And my mom decided to invite them over for New Year's, and so it was just going to be us, a very small thing. And I remember warning my mom before they arrived, don't start hitting on the friend. He's too young for you don't do that. Of course not. Blah, blah, blah. You know, what do you think? Uh, and then of course the minutes, the minute they arrive, you know, she starts being like really charming in sort of a gross way. And, um, and I was getting really annoyed. So at some point, uh, I left the living room and I could hear my mom like sort of with this tone of voice, asking the friend so do you like my daughter what do you think about her she's great huh like i like basically i did that so if you like her you know you have to like me and i I could see where that was heading and i told my my boyfriend we're leaving i don't even want to know what's gonna happen so we left we went to his place and i don't know what happened i don't want to know so that was another thing where it was progressively getting more and more invasive, I'd say. And then then when I was around uh, 20, um, my mom wanted to go to Mexico with me for a month around Christmas time. And I really debated it because I really didn't want to be around her for that long. But... I also really wanted to go to Mexico mm-hmm. and she was paying for everything, of course. So that's how she got me to go. So I went and it was horrible. She was like super anxious the whole time. I had to do everything, talk to everybody because I 
I spoke English and I speak a little bit of Spanish and she did nothing. So I organized everything and she was just always like freaking out about everything. Anyway, the last week we were there, we went to this very small resort where I met a local man working at that resort and um, you could tell that something was happening. You know, my mom knew, like he would come by my hotel at night and we would go to the beach for a few hours and I would come back, you know, so clearly she knew. And then um, the night before we were leaving, she invited him to the restaurant with us. So he came and, um, and oh yeah, this whole time he was asking me like, why are you not nicer to your mom? I don't understand. And I'd say like, don't mind that. Like he's like, mm. but she's your mom, you know, you should be nice to your mom. And I was like, don't, don't even worry about it anyway. So after we were done with dinner, my mom looked at me and she said, um, can you go wait outside? I have something to say to this man. And I was like, no, like, what, what could you have to say to him? Yeah. You know, I'm the one who's it's so weird. Yeah, it's weird. Right. And, you know, she's like, it's nothing, you know, blah, blah, just go outside 10 minutes. And I kept saying no. And finally she says, trust me, I'm your mother. And I was just like, Ugh. so I just walked outside and I waited. And 15 minutes later, he comes out, he grabs me by the hand. He says, I know now why you're the way you are with your mom. Let's go. And so we went to the beach and I kept asking him, when did, did she say to you? And he wouldn't say. And then when I went back to the hotel that night, I asked her and she wouldn't say. She just said, trust me, I'm your mother. But upon our return to Quebec after the trip, one of her friends told me and she had declared her love to this man that, you know, she hadn't spent time with, but I had been spending time with and that she was going to go back to Mexico and like take care of him and all this like crazy shit, like completely delusional, you know? Wow. Yeah. So at, at that moment, like I had already been not having much contact with my mom, but at that moment I thought she's not going to meet the next boyfriend I have because I don't want to know what's going to happen. If I get married, she's definitely not going to meet my husband because I don't want to mm. be in one of those situations where my mother sleeps with my husband. And if Why do you got to be so close-minded? <laughs> God, I guess they're... Pre <laughs> You're prudish up in Quebec. Well, it was a little too close to soap <laughs> operas. Is that what you say? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I thought if I ever have children, she's definitely not going to see them ever. And so then I thought, what's the point, right? What's the point? So I just stopped calling her. She didn't call me. We didn't talk. But um, yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say... Something that I hear a lot from people who experienced uh, covert incest from moms yeah. was the thing with the bed, the comforting. Oh, yeah. yeah. Can, you, can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So ever since ever, um, my mom would make me sleep with her in her bed whenever she was feeling anxious or sad. Um and it started really young, so there, was, there wasn't there was a lot of coaxing, you know? She would just say, can you come sleep in my bed tonight? And I would just go. And uh, sometimes she would talk or sometimes she wouldn't. She would cry sometimes. 
but I remember always, I would always turn my back to her and then scoot to like the edge of the bed, right? So I'd be in this sort of, not fetal position, but you know, mm -hmm. at the like as far as I could from her. Didn't want her to touch me or anything. And that, that position's called the fetal cliff. <laughs> and and um, eventually I'd fall asleep. And the last time that it happened, um, how, I was... How old were you? Well, so I don't think that I had sex yet, so not 14, but I knew what sex was. So I want to say... 12, maybe 13, you know. Um, and so she made me go sleep with her. And I woke up in the middle of the night in that position, really close to the edge of the bed. And there were weird noises happening behind me. And um, the first thought that came to my mind was that she was touching herself. And then I thought, that's crazy. So then I started running all the options in my head, like maybe... Maybe she's like scratching her eye really hard, you know, it can make mm -hmm. that sound. And I was like, no, I don't think so. And then there was nothing else that it could be. But I didn't want to know. So I did what I always did when my mom would make me sleep in her bed or when she would come in the morning, wake me up, is just stay there very, very still, pretending to be asleep and just wait until it was over. And then it was over. In the morning, I got up, and honestly, I don't even remember if she never asked me to go to her bed again or if I just said no and never did it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that was the last time. And, you know, I'm obviously not a parent, but I think there it's important to draw a distinction between the kid needing comfort and and climbing into the parents' oh, bed. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's it's not the fact that they're in the in the bed together. Yeah. It's who's comforting who. Yeah. No, the thing about uh, the kid wanting to climb into bed, my dad uh, took care of that when I was really young, too. When I was about four, I kept wanting to be, to go to bed, but like on his side, not between him and my mom or mm -hmm. not on my mom's side. And at some point... Your mom must have hated that. I She was sleeping, I think. Oh, okay. yeah. But uh, at some point, my dad decided that he was going to explain the whole Oedipus complex to me. And that's mm. why I wanted to get in bed with him. And so that's just not going to go. And I was four. So then I felt like a terrible person because I must be in love with my dad and want to kill my mom. And, <laughs> and that's a horrible. a thing to, to yeah. tell to a four-year-old Yeah, kid. my dad was completely inappropriate that, that way. And so every time after that, that I felt like I wanted to go in my dad's bed for comfort, I was like, oh, my God, I'm a horrible person. Oh, no. <laughs> it sounds like maybe your your dad just could, on, a, on some level, see that your mom had no boundaries. And he's like, I don't want to make that mistake. No, uh, you're you're giving him too much. I think he comes from a family where everything is secret. Nothing is said. And I think in his view, he wanted to raise a child where everything is out on the table. I see. But he didn't have the ability to understand that you need to filter shit you tell your kids. You know, you don't talk to a four-year-old the same About way. The, <laughs> yeah, the, uh... you don't need to say that. He could have just said, 
N- no, you know, yeah. this is mommy's and daddy's bed. You have yeah. your own bed. Or, or isn't that the Electra complex? Oh, yeah, yes. it's the opposite. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. In any case. I'm, I, I'm cutting off people uh, sending me emails uh, telling me th- that it's not the Oedipus complex. <laughs> right? <laughs> Too late. Good. Somebody's already got online yeah, yeah. and sent me one. Well, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I'm such a dick sometimes. <laughs> so, yeah. so go ahead. Uh, I don't know. What was I saying? Ugh, now I hate myself. <laughs> uh... Yeah. So your dad, uh, family, everything, oh, yeah. everything out on the table. Yeah. So he decided everything would be out on the table, and he would just say things to me the way they were, without you know taking care of phrasing, maybe. So that was inappropriate. But in his head, he was doing the right thing because he was explaining to me why he didn't want me there. It must be so hard to be a parent. It must be so fucking hard. Yeah. How do you not filter things through your own issues, especially if you're not aware of them? Well, yeah, that's the problem. You know, that's the problem. People have children uh, before they're aware. And if you have a personality disorder, most most of which tell you you don't have a personality disorder. Yeah. Yeah. Or like my mom. Her personality disorder made it that she never felt loved enough. And she had told me several times, like, she wanted to have, like, seven children, you know, because she loves children so much. But I know it's because I think by having a child, she was expecting that she would be getting this unconditional love, unconditional, right, Mm -hmm. (laughs) love. And, um, And that didn't happen. And when that didn't happen, she got really frustrated and... You know? Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk. Oh, and, and the other two things we, we have to uh, talk about is uh, your dad mm. and his codependency, which was really highlighted. Oh, you want the last him, events? Yeah, with uh, him being an immigration oh, yeah. officer. Okay. So, um, so my mom had threatened suicide basically like throughout my life. She had two really deep episodes where you know she would walk around the house without her denture and she wouldn't eat without her what denture oh dentures yeah Yeah. and she wouldn't eat and i remember having to like step over her to walk because she was laying on the floor oh my god yeah i had forgotten that one that one for a long time but i remember it gave me a lot of shame for a really long time yeah anywho um (laughs) That was such a Canadian moment. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but you know, so then my parents were separated for a really long time. The other thing is my dad, when I was younger, was an immigration officer for Quebec. And um, he was really close to his cases because he has no boundaries and he loved to help people. And one of his cases, his name was Mdala, came to live with him. His name was what? Mdala. Okay. Um, How do you spell that for our, if anybody transcribes this? Oh, yeah. M apostrophe B-D-A-L-A, I think. All right. Good enough. (laughs) So he came to live with us for a while when I was uh, little, and it was awesome. He was super nice. Oh, my God. I was so happy he was there. Um, My dad gave him a lot of attention, so my... 
I wasn't getting a lot of attention, so that, that was good from my parents, but I was getting attention from Mdala, and my dad was happy, so that was good. But uh, but my, your, mom, your mom was not living with you at this point? Yes, she was. Oh, okay. She was, and she wasn't happy. Okay. Because... So they'd gotten back together? Yeah, they got back together okay. uh, briefly. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it's it's possible that Mdala was before the first time they separated. Okay. But I, I don't remember. Um, yeah, so my mom was super jealous because my dad was giving attention to Mdala and not to her. And probably because I like spending time with Mdala more than with her. And uh, eventually, my dad told me that Mdala had to leave. He couldn't live with us anymore. And I'm sure that's because of my mom. So, you know, I was sad. He was sad, whatever. But then um, a little while later, the government turned down his uh, request for refugee status. And instead of going back to his country, having to go back to his country, he set himself on fire and he died. And um, that was really devastating for my dad. It was horrible. Um, I think my dad felt really guilty that he couldn't help him. Um, You were saying... Um, earlier, uh, before we were recording that, you know, your dad was a functional alcoholic and, yeah. and every time he would get really drunk after that, he would recount that story. Yeah. So sometimes in the evenings, you know, uh, after he'd been drinking, if I stuck around the, the dinner table, cause in Quebec, <laughs> we like to stick around the dinner table and talk. He would always bring that up and he would tear up and. I mean, for me, it was overwhelming because I didn't know what to do about it. But for him, Mm. I mean, it was super traumatic for him, obviously. So then, years later, uh, after years of my mom and my dad not really having any contact, I think, um, my mom was in and out of the psych ward a lot because... Um, she had done a couple suicide attempts, like more active ones, like she threw herself in the St. Lawrence River, but she forgot that she's a really good swimmer. So that... <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh at that. <laughs> I know. No, I thought you were going to say, but it was winter and she bounced off it. No, no. Mm-hmm. I mean, she. it was cold. She had a jacket on, but she's yeah. a really good swimmer. So what's going to happen, you know? And like people called immediately because there's always people walking on the side of yeah. the river. And there's even like these little ladders that you can climb up. Anyway, um, so she was in and out of the hospital a lot. And uh, one time she convinced the psychiatrist that she was good enough to get released for the weekend. And she called my dad, of all people, to ask him if she could go to his house for the weekend. And because my dad doesn't know how to say no and he wants to help people and she's the mother of his daughter, he said yes. So um, so my mom uh, decided to stay in my bedroom, even though I wasn't living at home anymore. My dad sort of had kept it as my bedroom. I still had some clothes there because when I went back to visit from California, I would have clothes. And uh, there was a guest room in my dad's house, but that's not the one my mom chose. She chose to stay in my room and she was sleeping in my, like I had an old nightgown from when I was 15 or whatever. That's what she was sleeping in. And then um, at night, 
she went to the bathroom and she locked herself in the bathroom and then she set herself on fire. And um, after a while, the smoke got under the door and hit the smoke detector and it woke my dad up. And um, my dad tried to open the door, but she had locked it. And so I don't know if it's like through talking or if he was able to pick the lock but he was able to open the door and I wasn't there. I was in California when all of this was happening. So I heard about it after. Um, anyway, so then he threw a bunch of towels on her to extinguish the fire, but she was already burnt really badly, but she told him that she didn't want to go to the hospital. And because my dad is completely inadequate, he said, okay. So they just sat around the dinner table for a while, like an hour, I think until he finally convinced her that they had to. And instead of calling 911, he called a cab. And so, Jesus. And so they drove to the burnt unit in a cab. And that's how my mom got to the hospital. And she was really badly burned. So then I got the phone call and I came, I was debating, you know, should I go, should I not go? She was in and out of consciousness. Oh, and poor, I don't your know. Poor mom. What? Poor, I mean, <laughs> I I know that she's. I, I'm sorry, but at this moment, I'm, I I just I'm feeling such empathy for how fucked up she was, how much pain she must have been in. Um, Are you and, being and serious? Hating, yes, and hate and hating what she did to you, hating the sickness that that was in her is this pissing you off that I'm that I'm saying this I'm not pissed off but I uh I wish I knew how to get to that feeling because all I'm feeling is that she was such a fucking bitch to do to my dad what had traumatized them before the like she didn't she fire. wasn't thinking of the pain or if she was it was only sort of in a vindictive way because she did exactly what Imdala had done and that had destroyed my dad and she did it in my nightgown. But look at, and I'm not trying to get you to feel the, the way I feel about your mom, but look at how little regard she had for herself, how overwhelming her feelings were that she was going to, willing to go to the length of burning her own body because yeah. the feeling of wanting revenge or whatever it was i guess that's the part that i i try to put myself in her shoes and think of what must the feelings have been in her body to go to that length it must have been it must have been like the like her emotions were a fire that she just couldn't that she just couldn't control Probably. I think I would have and, empathy for her if she had killed herself without involving my dad in it. Yes, that that uh, I, I totally understand that. But I see it as part of her sickness. I, I, I see it. And maybe I'm completely letting her off the hook. But I see it as um, as somebody who was just in a prison of their own feelings. Yeah. Of, uh, but 
there are people who feel prisoners of their own feelings and they take steps to try to resolve that. They try therapy. I mean, they and that's t- a part of your mom that I hate is the part of her that, that was unwilling to see her part in things, yeah. unwilling to get help. I mean, yeah. obviously, when she went to psych wards, somebody must have said, hey, well, she was committed because she tried to kill herself, yes. you know, but but if during I mean, she had many years, like 25 years to just say, I feel empty inside. I don't know what to do with myself. I need help. Can somebody help me? Then yes. Then yes, you can have empathy because they're admitting to being vulnerable as opposed to everything that's happening to them is mm-hmm. your fault. But here's what here's what I see is is that mental illness warps reality. True. And and that's what I see in your mom, that it was warped to such a degree that she couldn't see the truth. Yeah. When you look at the lengths that she went to um, to try to fill that emptiness, anybody who remotely had a sliver of a hold on reality yeah. wouldn't have have done those things. And, and I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't know. But I, I felt like I just had to express the feeling that I had at that moment as you were sharing her lighting herself on fire of the feeling of just wanting to go give your mom a hug. Whoa. Not not before before she, (laughs) not after she lit herself on fire. But, um, and maybe that's part of me wanting to do it to, uh, to go comfort because I can't, it's not safe for me to comfort my mom. Yeah, maybe. I'm sure I'm putting all my bullshit uh, on you, but I've heard so many surveys and encountered so many people with borderline personality disorder. Yeah. Um, that I see this pattern that it's a thing. It's like alcoholism. I know people who have died from alcoholism that, that wanted to get better, but there was something inside them that they couldn't, they couldn't, they just couldn't get it. And yeah. was it a lack of will? Was it arrogance? Or was it that reality was so warped for them that they, that it was impossible for them? And on, on the off chance it was impossible for your mom, that's, that's the, the part of her that I want to hug. Well, that's very nice of you. And I'm not going to de- deny her your empathy. I'm still at the point where she never showed me empathy. So it's really hard to find it in myself yes. to give it to her. You know what I mean? Like I have to completely detach and think of her as a complete stranger with a mental illness. Yes. And then I can say, oh, that woman was suffering. But she set herself on fire with my nightgown at my dad's house, so it's hard to completely separate. You know what I mean? <laughs> she didn't make that easy. That's, that might have to make it into the opening montage for, <laughs> yes. for next year. Success. And and I, I suppose for me, because your mom is a is a stranger, yeah, right. it's, I'm sure if I spent 10 minutes around her, I would have went to 7-Eleven and bought a lighter. <laughs> well, you would have run away, that's for sure, because she yeah. was very... Um, how do you say? Uh, 
invasive. Yeah. Oh, I'd have totally fucked her. <laughs> you Too probably much? would have. No. It's, Too much? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that's probably true. And I'm like, ugh. Are you regretting driving up here now? No. <laughs> I felt like we know each other enough that it's fine. That I can make these. No, listen, jokes. listen. I have a very dark sense of humor, yeah, okay. and it's I'm, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it's the image it brings because it's something my mom would have done. I'm not, you know what? I, yes, I'm not like seeing you doing it. Yeah, I'm seeing my mom doing it. Yeah. Oh my god. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That was awesome. Uh, break uh, for, can we break for water? Yes. Okay. People step away. Um, let's talk about how all of this has affected you and what you struggle with. Um, share the thing about the massage therapist. Oh, the, um, the thing about my somatic? Yeah. Um, okay, so I started this thing on the advice of a f- good friend, and it's called um, somatic integration. And it's basically a physical massage of areas that you feel have tension. But oftentimes, you know, we store anxiety and feelings, shame, trauma. yeah, trauma in our bodies, right? And so it seems like... Um, Oftentimes, if you work certain areas where there is tension, then emotional tension will become more accessible also. And um, (laughs) even to me, like this sounds a little foo-foo. I'm a scientist, you know, I was like, I'll try it, but whatever, you know. But surprisingly for me, uh, it really allowed me to touch to emotions that otherwise I'm not able to because I'm too intellectual like i'm not in touch with my feelings very much but i can feel things through my body a lot and so um this one time the therapist wanted to help me relax my shoulders and so i was laying on my back uh is that true no i was laying on my front and she put her hands around my bicep and just like gently pulled down to try to, you know, pull on my shoulder. And I got this huge reaction inside of me where I was screaming at somebody like, let me go, let me go. Why can't you let me go? You know, you never want to let me go. And I was like desperate. Um, And it's not like I had a clear picture of someone like physically holding me down. But I also felt like it was my mom was present in that moment. I can't help but think of when your mom would wrap her arms around you because her oh. your touch went her touch went across your biceps, right? Yeah. I never thought about that. <laughs> yeah, that's my that's my two cents. Yeah. I'll think about it yeah. for sure. And the other thing too is that uh, my mom every morning when I was uh, a teen, she would leave for work before I would leave for school. And so she would come to wake me up in my room. And so I would usually wake up before because she had been making noise in the kitchen and stuff. And I would hear her steps down the... I could tell it's so triggering to you. Down the hallway. Well, yeah, because now I'm getting ready for what's coming, you know. And so I would turn with 
in my bed so that my back would be to her and I would like hug the wall basically and then she would open the door and she would come in and she would sit on the side of my bed and she would start stroking my back and then she'd be like I know you're not sleeping. I know you can hear me. You don't want to talk to me. That's fine. But before you go to to school, can you take the garbage out? Or like whatever. Like, mm-hmm. you know, whatever stuff. But the feeling I had was I was completely paralyzed. I was holding my breath, but at the same time, like trying to make it look like I was breathing, like if I was sleeping, you know? Everything was so controlled and just waiting for it to be over, for her to leave. And eventually she would get up, she would leave. I could hear the front door open and close and then uh, I would wait. I would wait. In case she came back. Yeah. In case she came back, I'd wait. And then after 10 minutes, maybe I'd start thinking, okay, it's safe. She's probably not going to come back. And I get up and I get dressed for school, have breakfast, go to school. And then in the evenings, I would go to my friends that lived literally three houses away and kept checking my watch because I knew what time my mom would be home. And I would run home before she would get there because if she got there before I was there, then she would like throw me this like guilt trip, you know, uh, I wasn't there for her and blah, blah, blah. And like, I don't know why exactly, but it was super, uh, it's like she couldn't live if I wasn't there. So let's get back to the, to the massage thing. So the bicep pulling on the biceps. Uh, well, yeah. So she was just pulling on my biceps and, and that's all she did. And I just got this really, really strong feeling of, being physically okay. pinned down and but there wasn't there something with your neck being released with my neck yeah you said you said that something you were able to turn your neck more after you oh that was the first session oh okay yeah so the first session i had um i started on my back and she was trying to turn my head to the side like trying to touch my ear to my shoulder basically and it wouldn't really go very far and I had a lot of feelings of my dad coming up. And when I think about negative things with my dad, it's more of a, I'm prepping for a fight. So my shoulders go up and I get my jaw really clenched because I know there's going to be yelling, you know, and I have to, there's going to be some like mind Mm -hmm. stuff. So I need to be ready. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so there was a lot of that. And then by talking through it, you know, basically, I'll just say, yeah, like, I'm seeing my dad. And then the therapist asks, like, well, can you see where you are? And I'll say, yeah, like, we're in the kitchen. You know, what is he saying? What are you saying? And this whole time, she keeps massaging the area. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you're always supported. That's how it feels like. And then eventually, um, the area relaxes. And at that point, she brings you into relaxing by, like, making you aware of your breathing and all these other exercises, you know? And and then I was able to turn my head, like, completely. It, it sounds like an amazing... Now, is she a massage therapist or a somatic therapist? She's a licensed massage therapist yeah. and, and has trained in somatic integration okay. and trains okay. other massage therapists now. Well, she sounds... 
Oh, she's amazing. Awesome. She's awesome. And it, and it also sounds like the key to that was that you first felt safe enough with her. Yeah. Because you get you were sharing with me that you get triggered like the, what, what's the thing that makes you want to punch people? Oh yeah. <laughs> so I can't have people uh, touch the back of my neck. Like certainly not wrap their hand around the back of my neck, but even if it's a flat hand, mm-hmm. uh, I will, it's the flight or fight response. I'm going to throw a punch or I'm going to run away. It's like something is going to happen. And I don't know what, because I also have no memory of ever being taken by the neck by anybody, mm-hmm. but that's what it is. So I trust, I trust it in the sense that I, I'm not going to tell myself, Oh, nothing happened. So just let it happen. You know, I just tell people don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, well the therapist, um, she repeated over and over to me, you're in control of this thing. If there's something that feels uncomfortable, you just say so, I will stop. And she told me several times. And uh, I dared say something at some point, and she she did stop, you know? So she's really putting the power into the person who's receiving the service. So for me, that's good. Yeah. And she's so caring, you can mm-hmm. tell right away, you know? She's awesome. She's in San Diego. Yeah, I'll give a, I can give you the information after and if people call you. Okay. I'll, I'll uh, forward their emails yeah. to yeah. you. Um, what are the issues um, that you struggle with today? Today. That are probably yeah. a, a result of the yeah. stuff you went through. That's something also, I knew I had issues, but I didn't know where they came from. And so I've always had problems where like at the beginning of a relationship i'm fine i'm i'm all sexual it's all good i have no problems but it's almost like the second that the relationship becomes committed then i freeze i have zero desire zero basically uh which is a problem and you, and you understand that that is one of the hallmarks of uh sex abuse survivors well, I do now, Okay, (laughs) but when that started, like when I was in my twenties and I started seeing it as a pattern, Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even know that I lived in situations that are considered sexual abuse, you know? Um, and so with the boyfriend that I have now, I thought I don't want this to be the thing that's going to break us up. Like this relationship is important to me. And so I started seeing, um, a couple's. Uh, therapist and so he came and this was about three years ago I think and she said something she asked me about my mom and I shared with her how open quote unquote she was with my sexuality and she looked at me and she's like well what do you feel about that and I was like nothing you know it was great at the time and then she said uh well don't you think that could have something to do with what you're having troubles with today. And I was like, no. (laughs) And she said, yeah, because, you know, sexuality is something that teenagers should appropriate themselves separately from their parents. And you didn't have that. And I truly did not understand what she was telling me. So I didn't take it in, right? And then uh, I kind of stopped going to see her. 
And um, had you shared with her the thing in the bed with waking up to your mom? I don't remember if I did okay. or not. Probably okay. not. Okay. Um, and then, then I started listening to your podcast, <laughs> and um, you know, people talking about sexual abuse, and then I quickly identified that people that were raped could have this intimacy avoidance thing, but I didn't relate it to me. But then you started talking about it. You started talking more about your mom, and you started opening a little bit about some issues of intimacy. And then you had some guests that also brought it up, and I was like, huh, well, intellectually, I could see how probably that's what's <laughs> happening, <laughs> but I still can't relate to it emotionally, you know? So then um, uh, I talked to my psychologist about it, and she suggested uh, EMDR. So I just started doing that because um, that's for post-traumatic stress disorder, which is another thing. I was like, well, I can't have PTSD. Like, because if you look in the definition, it's one event, but um, oh no, the, there's definitely collective. Yeah, PTSD. the really good um, psychologist I had when I was in Quebec. I'm still in touch with him. We write sometimes. He told me like, no, like repetitive stuff. Like even if you don't think your life is in danger, that's enough because you always live in this state of fear somehow. Mm -hmm. And like I never related to this thing of like people say I was afraid because I didn't think I felt afraid. But now I realize that I was always on the lookout for what's going to happen next. And all of those physical reactions that you had, you know, being disgusted yeah. to where your skin crawls is a form of fear. I guess. <laughs> it's, it's not that you're going to be beat up, but it's that you're going to be overwhelmed. That you, yeah, you're you, going to be touched. Yeah. Yeah. It, and And touching is no good. And intimacy is no good because... So I think that's the thing. Like, I can be either sexually intimate with somebody or I can be emotionally intimate <laughs> with somebody but not both at the same time my mom made me be in intimately emotionally intimate with her and she brought a component a strong component of sex into it but because she didn't touch me you know mm -hmm. it's it's a little it's gray in my head yeah. although I you know, I know it's sexual abuse, but in any case, so, so yeah, like intimacy is dangerous, you know, and if you love someone, you need to be emotionally intimate with them. And so the sex goes out the window. I can't be both. I don't know how to be both. I think that's my last defense. That wow, that's profound. I've done a lot of work where, you know, I had big walls. Oh, my God. I was like a cold. You know what my mom told me all these years? They became true. You know, I became cold and a bitch and no empathy for anybody. And um, no empathy for me, of course, because why would I? Like, and and, and self-care. You struggle with self-care. Oh, no. Yeah. Talk I mean, I don't, I don't even know. I didn't even know what that was. You know, and honestly, showering, brushing your teeth. I know when you started talking about it on the podcast and my other really good friend, the one who suggested the somatic work, she's way into that kind of stuff, you know, self-care. And I was like, Ugh, like <laughs> this, like f 
frou frou. Oh yeah. yeah, just talk about. I'm like, come on. But then listening more about your your podcast, I realized that I hate taking showers. Like I hate it. I don't want to take showers. I only do it like you know because at some point I have to wash my hair. Do you struggle to prepare yourself uh, a detailed nu- nutritious meal? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <Okay. laughs> yeah, I don't do that. I did for a while when I was when I first moved to California. It was really good, and now I don't do that anymore. I hate brushing my teeth. Hate it. Always hated it. Always hated showers. Like I can't stand to have water on my face. Um, yeah. I when I was younger, I thought that it was because I had really bad eczema when I was young, and so getting in the shower was actually hurtful. Mm. Like it made my skin drier and after it was really itchy. But it's better now and I still hate taking showers. And so there's something else there. Uh, I'm reading a book. I shared this with Julie before we started uh, recording, but uh, it's it was brought to my attention by a therapist that um, I show a lot of signs of uh, sexual and social anorexia. And uh, she suggested this book by Patrick Carnes called uh, Sexual Anorexia. And it is really profound. And I highly recommend it to anybody who is struggling with self-care, who especially has that thing where you can be uh, enjoy sex with a person until the relationship becomes um, committed and then some a switch turns off. That That's one of the hallmarks of uh, sexual uh, anorexia or having no desire to be intimate with anybody that that can be another yeah another thing and because in my case like if for some reason i get a spark of desire then i know now like you need to act on this because it's going to be gone and you're not going to get it mm-hmm. for a while so i i do and i enjoy sex it's not like you know i'm not enjoying it and also if like my boyfriend scratches my back um, or my neck, I really like it. Like, I like to be touched. Wow, that's a lot of progress for you. Right? Yeah, well, when I was young, I was super touchy-feely. I touched everybody. I always wanted to be touched. Like, I would, when my friends, uh, my parents' friends would come over for dinner, like, I would sit really close to them, and usually they would rub my back. I loved it. But at some point, I sort of stopped liking it, you know? But there's a part of me that really likes it. It's almost more like the anticipation of mm-hmm. it, or if it has a the goal of sex, you know, I sh- sh- shy away from it more. But I also get this thing where if people scratch the back of my neck, I get this, uh, like my brain gets flooded with something, and I go into this sort of trance. Good, good or bad? Good. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting because the flat hand yeah. or the hand around the back no. of your neck, no, no, but scratching it. Yeah. Like, yes. Yeah. Like any kind of scratching like this, light yeah. scratching. That's interesting because, you know, maybe it's like the uh, a scratch has a boundary to it because the hand can't envelop. Huh. Whereas the, if the hand is open, yeah. it could lead to yeah. to being uh, over. Yeah, because you can't really like hold somebody down with the tip of your fingers. Right. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. And it makes sense to me that you would also crave or at least you used to crave that because it's like that your your little kid never got that yeah 
Not from my mom. Not from your mom. No. My dad would sometimes, he would scratch my head. That was his way of showing affection. Would he hug you? Rarely. He would hug me, like, after I left for California, when I came back, he would hug me, you know. And would that feel good? Before he stopped drinking, no, it didn't feel good. Because he would smell of alcohol and cigarettes, and it just reminded me of all those years of, ugh. But after he stopped drinking, yes, it did feel good. I had five years with him uh, sober, and I'm so thankful. And when did he pass? In 2000... Wait. It's been... It's been three... Three or four years now. And I'm, I'm just going to guess he lit himself on fire? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. He would have never done that. So he broke the cycle. Yeah. He died of cancer. Just regular, common... I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I was too. It was really traumatic for me. And, you know, something I, I, I want to uh, backtrack and um, mention is, you know, when I was talking about having empathy... Um, feeling compassion towards the sick part of your mom in no way am i suggesting that you didn't do all the right things by cutting her out of your life because i have to have compassion for my mom from a from a distance with with no contact and i'm able to have compassion uh, for her that way because i don't feel um I'm not in a position to feel overwhelmed and manipulated by her. So I just want to make that clear for anybody out there who is listening and thinking, well, then I'm a bad person if I'm not. Oh, God, The the compassion means you have to have a relationship with this person. Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, um, you know, people, when I told people I don't have contact with my mom, a lot of people just looked at me like I was crazier the most horrible person but you know i never felt guilty because i felt like for 20 some years i tried and tried and tried and did everything i could and at some point you just have to realize it's not going to change so i was thinking it's going to be me or it's going to be her she's going to drag me down with her Mm -hmm. it's not worth it and I've, I don't think I've ever met a person who cut contact with a parent where it didn't, after hearing their story, it didn't make sense to me because all kids have a thing inside them that wants desperately yeah. to have a relationship with a parent that's safe. And so for them to make that painful decision where every fiber of your being is saying, God, I want this to work, it has to be really fucking undoable yeah it's not like you're like oh my god my mom's not buying me the clothes i want fuck you i'm not going to talk to you anymore you know it's you have to think about it like what did the parent do that was so bad that the kid had no other option but to cut contact because that's what happens you have no other option otherwise you keep drinking or you keep fucking around or you keep hurting yourself and I have heard stories of, of parents changing and then coming back into their kids' lives and they and they have uh, relationships that are, um, you know, if not ideal, uh, manageable. Wow, good for them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm envious of... Uh, are you? Of those people. I am. I am. You would, like, you would have that kind of relationship if your mom would... If if she if I thought that, that there was a light at the end of the tunnel, but there really isn't because every time I 
set boundaries and go back, I become disappointed or hurt or feel overwhelmed or infantilized or flirted with, uh, not just in the tone, not in the things that are said, but there's just a, it's hard to describe. It's a feeling that I get. And it's like when my uncle tells me, wow, you've grown into a good looking woman. Yeah, that's gross. And you, yeah, it's this, it's the tone of voice. He could just say, wow, you've really grown into a beautiful woman. Yeah. Or he could say, not with his words, if you weren't my niece, I'd fuck you. That's yeah. kind of what your mom is saying, I guess, with her tone of voice, if it grosses you out. That's what it, that, yeah, I don't think that's the subtext of what she's saying, but there's a drinking in yeah. quality yeah. that, um, that's the best word I can use to describe yeah. it. Is there anything else you want to share before we do any uh, fears and loves? Um. No. Let's do some. You think that's good? Okay. Did Let you bring some? Yeah. Okay. They're in my phone. Go get them. All right. <laughs> you want to go first? Sure. Okay. I'm afraid of talking to people on the phone, like not close friends, but especially for work, and that I'm going to sound like an idiot and I don't know what to say, and it's it's horrible. I try to avoid that. <laughs> I can very much relate to that. There, There is a dread when the, the phone rings that has its own specific. Uh, in fact, I was joking that my ringtone should be taps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when my boss tells me like, okay, call somebody for this yeah. or that. I'm like, okay. And then I'll write an email or I'll call early in the morning so it gets to their voicemail you know? yes, yes i've done that too and yet i've had so many calls especially from people in my support groups that have made my day yeah and i realize that that is me filtering reality through my i don't know what you want to call it my alcoholism my uh, social anorexia my desire to to isolate so yeah. uh, i definitely i definitely get that one um, I love, I think I've shared this one before. We're but, doing fierce. Oh, th- fierce. That's right. Um, I am afraid that I'm going to get an avalanche of emails telling me that I completed, negated, completely negated your experience, um, by talking about the, the wanting to. To hug your mom. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, don't write Paul because it didn't negate. I didn't take any of that on me. Okay, because you looked so shocked when I said it <laughs> as if, um, yes. Stop okay. beating yourself with okay. that one. It's okay. not even an issue. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I'm afraid that the people I work with will realize that I don't know what I'm doing, that I'm not smart that I'm a fraud, and that I really shouldn't have the job that I have. That might be the most common thing that I hear people share in the uh, I shouldn't feel this way survey. Yeah. It is so, so common. Um, but that being said, you should feel that way because you're horrible at your job. <laughs> did I, my boss call you? Uh, they did. They all called me. And they said, can you do something to let her... Uh, just let her go oh easily. Oh, my God. We don't 
They said, we hate making phone calls because uh, <laughs> we also have social anorexia. So would you let her know? I'm going to get kicked out of the country yes. if I lose my job. Well, this is the, this is, I didn't invite you on here to, uh, to hear your story. I invited here to let you go from your job. <laughs> And cust- okay. customs is right outside the door. That escalated quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am afraid. Um, I'm afraid of uh, that when Herbert dies, the sadness is going to be so overwhelming. I'll be sad when Ivy dies too, but um, there's something really special about Herbert. Uh, I'm just afraid. That when that happens, it's going to hurt so, so much. It does. A few years ago, I lost the dog that was my dog. You know how there's a dog that's just your dog? Yeah. And I lost him. He died or or was literally lost? No, he was hit by a car. Yeah. Almost in front of me. Oh, I'm so sorry. I held him while he was... Oh. I know. And... Of course, they say when you're grieving, you're grieving all the past griefs but i didn't feel like i was grieving my mom but i was i was bargaining with god which i don't even believe in god i would give anything for him to come back and i never bargained (laughs) for my mom to come back and then i would ride my motorcycle and like scream into my helmet at the top of my lungs it was horrible Mm -hmm. so yeah, sorry. Yeah. That's not helping. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, we had to put our uh, previous dog down uh, 12 years ago, Ugh. and we had her for 14. Oh, my God. She was awesome. Yeah, we found her just in the middle of a highway. Oh. Yeah. She was she was so good. Her name was Charlie. She was the best. <laughs> the best. Yeah. That's the unfortunate thing about pets. They die before you do. They do. Um, what's your next fear? Oh, yeah. Um, okay. I'm afraid that my dad might have sexually abused people in our family that I really care about and that I can never atone for what he may have done. Why would you have to atone for it? I know that it doesn't make sense, but I don't want these people to have suffered my dad's hands and although I don't have any proof that anything happened there is behaviors that are really suspicious and because of the family he was raised in um, I tend to believe that something happened and I would want to take that pain away from them because you don't have enough of your own pain my own pain I can take. It's interesting, too, that your mom, who was sexually abusive, you don't feel that way about, but the potential of your dad having done that, I assume that you mean his brothers or sisters? Something. Okay. I don't really know. I know my grandfather was, he sexually abused two of his nieces, Mm -hmm. And because of other uncles' behaviors, there's a, a sexual overtone that is too much to not come from anything. I see. I see. Um, I mean, from what you shared with me, though, about your dad, yeah, the the very clear boundary, and the, yes. to me, it sounds like 
he's somebody who experienced something as a kid, maybe even did something as a kid, yeah. but a switch flipped in him that was like, I am not going to repeat this. That's, that's what it sounds to me like. That's possible, because the one event that I think something might have happened, he was uh, young, and then the second event, uh, he was a grown-up, but he was drunk, and so there was an appropriate touching, but I don't know at what level. Um but I asked myself, like, I've asked myself over the years a lot, you know, has my dad ever touched me? And no. I, like, if I think of my dad when I was younger, I had this feeling of I want to run to him. Whereas my mom, I wanted to be as far away from her as possible. So mm-hmm. I trust that. If mm-hmm. my dad had done something to me, you know, I yeah. wouldn't have that feeling of safety with him. That's your ringtone? Sorry. What is that? Is that some French thing? That's uh, to remind me to take my happy pills. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But what song is that? Oh, Or is uh, that just... I don't know. It's just an iPhone thing. Yeah. (laughs) You're not going to pull out a baguette and... uh... No. Oh, that would be awesome. (laughs) Um, But so I really don't think he did anything to me. And he didn't act... He wasn't a predator, you know? Like, I never saw him touch kids or say things to kids that way he never ever like made me sit on his lap or none of that you know what i mean anyway um i am afraid that uh climate change is going to make southern california so dry that we will have no choice but to move and uh we will get almost nothing for our house and won't be able to afford to find another place uh, to live in another city. And then I will also lose my network of uh, support group Yeah, friends. It's really likely to happen, but I think that um, you have a few years. <laughs> that was not the comfort I was looking for. <laughs> I'm a biologist. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's happening, yeah. and people aren't taking it as seriously as they should. Although California is doing a little better than Texas, but you know what I mean? So if people don't pay attention, then there's going to be problems. Yeah. But you have a few years. Okay. <laughs> I watched. Uh, did you ever watch that show Vice on HBO? Yeah. I, they just had one on the future of energy, uh, and uh, it was it was. Um, was it the one that hopeful... was directed at Obama? No. Okay. This one was about um, the uh, fusion as a potential. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, energy source because it's clean. Yeah, I and, didn't watch it yet. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Okay. Um, your turn. Let's do one more fear each and then do some loves. Okay, let's see. I have two left, so I'm going to pick one. Oh, you can do both of them. Okay. Yeah. I'm afraid that my boyfriend will tire of me before I can figure out how to be both emotionally and physically committed. Wow, that's that's deep. Yeah. I think the important thing, though, is that you're aware of that and you're working on yourself. Yeah, but... I have been working on myself, and people have different limits, right? Yeah. Not that he says anything, but I always have that doesn't keep you from beating yourself up. (laughs) No, that one day he's just gonna say, you know, I'm tired of waiting. Kind of wonder where you would have an abandonment issue from. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I never realized I had abandonment issues until uh, God, maybe five years ago, and now I see them everywhere. 
I was like, I don't have, I mean, I'm strong. I don't need people. Fuck people. But apparently. I think you should campaign uh, on that <laughs> platform. <laughs> the fuck people yeah. platform. I don't need people. Fuck you. Yeah. I don't need your vote. Fuck face. <laughs> well, yeah. That person would get some votes. <laughs> I'd be kind of like Donald Trump. <laughs> um, give me, give me one more. Okay. I'm afraid to let go of my last wall and to find out that there is no way to be completely vulnerable with someone you love without being destroyed by that contact. That's heavy. From all the stuff that I've read, though, it people do, people that work really hard at um, learning how to be vulnerable and build intimacy, they do. That's what they, they say. They have it. Yeah. But you have to trust... This future knowledge against the knowledge that you have, that mm -hmm. that's a dangerous place to go. And so yeah. it's a lot of... A lot of trust? Yeah. Which is interesting. Because that's the thing that <laughs> needs to be built. Yes. Yeah. Uh, give me some loves. Okay. I love when my dog growls and barks in her dream. She does just... <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is a cute it's one. It's cute, yeah. Yeah. Um, I love the feeling of walking down the uh, hallway from the locker room to the ice and you got all your equipment on and people pass by you that aren't dressed in, they're just dressed in regular clothes and you realize and you feel just big and tough and Mas masculine yeah. yeah i just feel like i'm so in touch with my masculinity hockey. at that at that point and a lot of times people go oh the hockey players are here yeah and i just uh i just like that feeling hockey's awesome yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> um so who do you root for then the canadians or no no god okay, no i have because they're the they're the enemy in they're Quebec. the enemy i can never i so did you feel that way about them before the nordiques oh yes really i Wait, I hated the Canadians. They're the ultimate enemy of the Nordiques. And so... Be because of Montreal and Quebec City yes. disliking each other? Yeah, it's kind of like L.A. and San Diego. Yeah. And, uh, so funny, because L.A. doesn't even think about San Diego. Well, that's kind of what Montreal is also. They're yes. such condescending assholes. Yeah. <laughs> she and, just gave me a smile. <laughs> and uh, when I was a kid, my dad would have work meetings in Montreal, mm -hmm. and sometimes I would go with him, and so I would wear my little Nordiques. Mm -hmm. Jersey, and I would walk around the office in Montreal like a little brat. <laughs> so, yeah, so I hated them, and then the Nordiques left, and then there's no way I can root for the Canadians. I hate them deep in my soul. So then I was kind of stuck. So I guess Ottawa, you know, was okay. But basically, the way it works is if any Canadian team is playing an American team, then I root for the Canadian team. Mm -hmm. If uh, Canadian teams are playing together, then I have an order, but I never root for the Canadians unless they're playing against an American team. I gotcha. <laughs> and who would it be if it was uh, a Western Canadian team against a um, Ontario team? Okay, yeah. So the worst Canadian team for me is Montreal, mm -hmm. and then it's Toronto. I can't deal with the Maple Leafs. Okay. But I like Ottawa, so, yeah. But then... Um, Vancouver? 
Yeah, Vancouver are fine. I'm sort of neutral about Vancouver. So Edmonton? Yeah. I mean, they were... The you like them or don't? I do. Yeah. They were the shit when I was growing up. Oh, yeah. I mean, Wayne Kresge. I think they're going to be good again. Connor McDavid is unbelievable. Yeah, I, I watch it less him. now, but... Um, but yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, I really like them. He's amazing. Yeah. Um, give me a love. I love it when I get the brain tingles completely unexpectedly. I love that too. Um, I love when you're hearing a song you've heard 500 times before and you think, am I going to get goosebumps again listening to it? And you get goosebumps again listening to it. Yeah. Um, that moment in uh, Gimme Shelter when her voice cracks every time I get I get my the hair on my arms stands on end. Yeah. I get um sometimes I get that trigger in my brain like that flooding if I watch someone do something very deliberately with their hand. Mm -hmm. And so that's just awesome if I catch someone doing that like on the street or something. <laughs> so good triggering. Yeah, super good. Yeah. Yeah. Um I love going to a uh, new restaurant for the first time and seeing my wife just love what it is that that she's ordered um, and and then me also getting to try something new that I've never tried before and it opens up a whole new world of Oh, there's something that I love. There's yeah. something I want to eat again. There's something. There's a restaurant I'm excited to go back to again. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I love the very rare feeling that I sometimes get in all the cells of my body that I belong, that I know what I'm doing, and that I'm strong. Oh, that's a beautiful one. Uh, I love driving. I, I love remembering to be present. Which, by the way, in this book I'm reading about sexual anorexia, yeah. is a huge... That's like the door through which sexual and, and social anorexia uh, can start to heal, is bringing everything into the present moment, being aware of nature when you're around it, being aware of uh, touch, good touch. Um, and I had a moment the other day when I was just driving to my coffee place, and I noticed so many things that I'd never noticed before because I wasn't trapped in my thoughts about the future or the past. Um, I was just going, oh, there's dead limbs on a tree. Look at the way that green tree overhangs the road and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I had a great day and I think it was really related to starting it off by being present. So I love when I'm able to be, yeah, to be present. That's a good feeling. Yeah. Give me another one. Um, I love that I'm a biologist which I knew I would be since I was very little. Seems like a really great way to um, blend your love of uh, nature with, um, I'm assuming you have a love of nature. I can't <laughs> no, imagine, I hate it. No. I can't imagine how a biologist <laughs> wouldn't have a, a love of nature. <laughs> yes, I like nature. Yeah. Um, I like, I, it's like this thing where, This is what I need to be. Mm -hmm. If I wasn't doing this, uh, I'd feel like I'm being useless. And some people have that feeling for helping others, but mm -hmm. you know, I hate people, so 
nature is a good <laughs> stick into your platform issues <laughs> well you know yeah. i love the feeling of um you're outside and it's either lightly or moderately raining and you're under a tree that is so big and so old not a single drop is getting on you but you're hearing the rain hitting the leaves and yeah. you just feel protected yeah I love um, when I did bird work, you have to get up super early. It's still mm -hmm. dark to be at the site when the birds actually wake mm -hmm. up. And um, I love that feeling of being out there when nature wakes up and you feel like you own the world because everybody's asleep, but you're there. That's a nice one. I like that. Um, I love sinking like a 40 foot curling putt and just uh the people that you're golfing with just go crazy <laughs> and especially if it's something that that uh, maybe you win it if there's some type of gambling going on and maybe you come from behind and tie somebody <laughs> or you or you win it um i just love the drop Here's how I wanted to say it. I love the drama of anybody sinking a long putt and the cheers and the laughter when it happens. Yeah, <laughs> That's good. I love the feeling of crossing the country on my motorcycle by myself. Oh, that sounds awesome. It was. What kind of motorcycle? BMW GS650. Oh, yeah. BMWs yeah. are such great motorcycles. Oh my god, it's amazing! It's amazing. Um, let's do one more each. Okay, I have to think about it because yeah. I didn't prepare. Anything. Oh, you done? You go. That might that might remind okay. me of something. I love the feel of a Fender Stratocaster. How it's the body is chamfered so that it lays perfectly against your body and. There's no sharp edges, and you can get all the way up to the highest frets. And just how how it was designed by people that actually played guitars, and how you can go from getting a really beautiful bassy tone to flicking a switch and getting a really bright um, kind of trebly tone. The just the the variety of sounds that you can get out of a Stratocaster and whether it's distorted or clean and especially if you're playing it through a uh, an old vintage Fender amp, particularly a Princeton Reverb. Is that specific enough? I have no idea what you're talking about. Guitar players. It well. sounds great and my boyfriend, I'm sure, will totally relate. Yeah. <laughs> Give me one more. Um, I love... Looking at one of my restoration sites that used to be full of really bad weeds and now they're gone and there's a pair of ducks with two little ducklings on the creek and I did that. That's that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Julie, thank you for um, being my buddy and uh, coming and doing this. And um, I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Many, many thanks to, uh, to Julie. I really enjoyed talking to her. A um, couple of updates since we recorded that, and that wasn't that long ago. I think it was maybe like two months ago. But uh, 
Vegas now has a hockey team, an NHL team. They, uh, they haven't named the team yet, at least not that I, that I know of. Uh, I'm going to suggest the name the uh, Vegas Sweatpants. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been to Vegas, but a lot of sweatpants. Um, or the Vegas Crocs. And the second thing is, I emailed Julie and asked for an update and uh, told her episode was airing because uh, I warned all my guests I can't promise their episode will air. And she write, uh, wrote, oh my God, I was comfortably living with the idea that it might be a year or, or two uh, before it aired. Um, this is what has been going on recently. Uh, about six weeks ago, I started having regular nightmares where I was put in situations where I had to fight for my life or the life of people that I love. I've had those before, but now I was having several per night and they happened every night for two weeks until I finally reached out for help to my EMDR therapist. She gave me an emergency appointment with, with my psychiatrist for the next day. He gave me clonazepam. I think I'm pronouncing that right, to stop the nightmares and added one milligram of Abilify to boost the Effexor. I was already uh, I was already taking. He also gave me a week off from work and another week part-time. Then I went into this hypomania shit where I compulsively uh, bought a shitload of clothes online, which I'm now returning. I'm keeping about 25% of them because they are nice and my wardrobe needed some updating. I also wasn't sleeping and I had this crazy nervous energy, but I also felt like doing nothing except buying clothes online. So that's kind of weird. My psychiatrist is coming back from vacation today, so I'll let him know what's been going on. Then I have sort of a happy thing that happened. I felt like my depressive state over the past six weeks has been affecting my work. Mostly, I feel like I'm not on the ball getting stuff done. I forget what I'm supposed to do and I can't think, so I can't write. I apologize to my main client, I've worked with her for over 10 years, and told her a little bit about why my work has been subpar. She said she hadn't noticed. She wasn't disgusted by me, and we kept talking about work stuff and life stuff. That felt good. I also apologized to my team, and they also said that they hadn't noticed. And they also uh, weren't disgusted by me, and actually let me know that they hoped I would feel better soon. Everybody was so nice about it. That's it. Um, thank you for that update, Julie. And I, too, uh, had a month of hypomania when I was first on, um, had, had it when I was on Abilify, which I then went off of, but not because of that. Uh, but Lamictal, the first month of Lamictal, I experienced um, uh, definitely hypomania. And uh, I think that's it for the... Uh, stuff I want to... Oh, uh, before I get to this, the surveys, uh, there's a couple of different ways to support this show. If you feel so inclined, you can go to our website, metalpod.com, and make a one-time uh, PayPal donation or recurring monthly donation, which, of course, I love because it gives us a little more uh, firm footing to know um, how the podcast is uh, is going to do. Uh, uh you can sign up for as little as five bucks a month. Um, it's super simple to do it. You just go to our website and um, click on the PayPal logo. Um, you can also support us financially uh, by shopping through our Amazon link. And um, and I'm told, by the way, that you cannot bookmark it with, I want to say it's Firefox or another browser. There's one browser that uh, uh, there's a, a problem with bookmarking. Um, our landing page at Amazon. But anyway, if you enter through our uh, 
link our portal on our website. Uh, if you buy something at Amazon through that, then Amazon will give us um, some money for it. And the price of what you buy isn't any more expensive. All these little things really add up. Um, you can also support us non-financially by writing something nice on iTunes and giving us a good rating. That helps. And spreading the word about the podcast through social media helps greatly. So um, any or all of those things and... Uh, if you don't feel like doing any of those things, if there's one guy in the world who understands it, it's me. Uh, this is from the Shame and Secret Survey. This is filled out by a trans female who is in uh, her 20s, uh, is homoflexible, uh, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. And I just wanted to read um, a couple of things uh, about this. Um, she has been physically abused and emotionally abused. And she writes, I dated a girl with borderline uh, with psychosis for a while. I didn't know that was a, a thing. Uh, it was the first time I'd been head over heels for someone. And at that mental age, I thought that meant you take all the good with the bad to make things work. She'd become hostily jealous of anyone I spent time with and cajoled me to stop hanging out with my friends, quit my school clubs, reconsider moving to China, and even think about changing my major. She knew she had me, and she thrived on that. Yet threats to her didn't need to be real, and if I did something that she interpreted as betraying her, she would make a, quote, shift. She would quite literally appear feral in these times and attack me. She would strike, scratch, and claw me. One time she squatted in the corner, cutting herself deeply, looking over her shoulder as abundant blood dripped down her leg, repeating, you did this, you did this. Another time she chased me under her bed, hissing and scratching at whatever part of me she could reach. I could see in her eyes that she loved the fear in mine. She locked eyes with mine, peering from on top of the bed and smiling before disappearing and jumping up as high as she could to crash the bed and its box springs down on me. I was terrified, but I realized she felt unsafe. To offer security and hopefully snap her out of this session, I crawled out from under the bed, sat down next to her, all the while she hit, clawed, pinched, and kicked me, and I sat quietly by her. I won't leave you, I told her again and again. A few seconds later, her expression changed, and she hugged me, crying how sorry she was. Sad thing, uh, sad thing is, to the end, I never did leave her. She had to do that herself before I could start to process what I had been going through any positive experiences uh, with your abuser. I loved her deeply and refused to accept anything negative anyone would say about her. She was my own fucked up safety net. At least I wasn't fucked up alone, I thought. While I no longer justify all the messed up things she did, I don't blame her for it either. She was ill, and so was I. Our neuroses thrived together, and what luck, hers was to abuse, and mine was to be abused. Thank you for sharing that. And... Um, uh, the other thing I want to point out is um, no one survey completely represents uh, any illness. So I'm sure there are people out there with borderline personality disorder who you know, hear me read something like this and go, oh my God, people that know that I have that uh, borderline personality disorder are going to think that, I'm, that I act like that, 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 that's, that we're all alike, and that's, that's not the case. That is not the case. There are, uh, there's a continuum uh, of any type of, of illness. And uh, 
so can be moderate to too severe. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Aspen, and she writes, um, After being raped as a freshman in college, I was told that I was at fault by the dean and president. Unbelievable. I hung in there for another year before I opted to transfer. I had rationalized it as, they tell you that the best civil weapon is your pocketbook. So the least aggressive, most emphatic way to say fuck you to the administration would be to take my tuition dollars elsewhere. The day I left, I took my last final, said a lingering farewell to the one that got away, and walked off campus. As soon as I reached the edge of the premises, I just turned around and hollered, fuck you, certain college. Fuck you, president. Fuck you, dean. It was cathartic and satisfying, and holy hell, I was excited for the rest of my life and figured I would embody the adage, the, re- the best revenge is living well. Thank you for sharing that. Of course, everybody's wondering, who is that college, and uh, how can we get that motherfucker fired? This is an email I got from a um, guy who calls himself Joseph, and he writes... Um, While the situation with my father is certainly different than the relationship you talk about with your mother, the delusional ideas about blood being thicker than water and what a child owes their parent are very similar. Um, Oh, I missed the the first sentence. Uh, I'm dealing with an issue that's been made a little clearer in the surveys in your podcast, not being being afraid to separate from family if the relationship is too toxic or unhealthy. Uh, And by the way, I don't think my mom ever ever said, um, you know, gave me the, the guilt about, uh, you know, you don't turn your back on family or, you know, whatever, whatever that is. I mean, there were certainly other things she made me feel guilty about, but that was, that was not one of them. Um, continuing, I let my dad know I wouldn't be attending Father's Day this year. I sent him a nice card, but also let him know via text that it's become too stressful lately to visit. When I'm there, my dad talks the whole time. He's incredibly anxious. He'll talk for an hour at a time about the negative direction the world is headed, his frustrations with work, or whatever else is bothering him. If you try to engage in the conversation, he'll either talk over you or listen for a brief moment before repeating what he was just saying. There's never really a conclusion or any amount of dialogue. It's just listening to someone's internal anxiety, but on a loudspeaker and without an iota of self-awareness. I've been seeing a therapist lately. I hadn't done so for about three years before that, and it's been a great fit. My therapist is very supportive. It's so bizarre having one adult one adult tell you confidently that what you're doing is healthy and brave, and another adult who is convinced that children have an obligation to their parents despite any conflicts. My dad's replies to the text so far have been, but I really just want to see you on Father's Day, and your message really made me feel hurt and sad. Um... You know, my thought is that while chronologically your therapist and your father may be adults, it sounds like emotionally your father is a child. And that's what's so frustrating. Um, Being around him is because he has no adult sense of boundaries or moderation or taking an interest in other people, that he's just so trapped in his own pain, in his own head. And... um, I think it's great that you're taking a break from him and you don't have to worry about how long it is right now. You know, could be a day, could be forever, but you don't have to figure that out right now. And um, good for you for speaking up for yourself. 
This is a shame and secret survey filled out by that weird art girl. She is straight. Uh, she's 16. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My dad never physically abuses me, but makes sexual comments about girls he sees when my mom isn't around. He also flirts with my friends, and that makes me embarrassed and uncomfortable. That is a form of, of sexual abuse. Absolutely. Sexualizing your children is a form of sexual abuse. Uh, sexualizing other uh, children uh, or adolescents in front of your child is a form of uh, sexual abuse. Uh, she's been emotionally abused. My dad sometimes calls me a little bitch because I'm not doing something that he wants like any other teenage girl. My mom then says that I kind of was being a bitch and that I deserve it. I then feel a tremendous amount of guilt and shame that I am a horrible daughter. It doesn't help when my dad tells everyone I hate him, which isn't true. My mom relies on me too much because her and my dad don't talk enough about their feelings, so she cries on my shoulder a lot. I don't have the guts to tell her to stop. And by the way, that's emotional incest. Um, uh, for a while, I've been more aware that some of my thoughts have not been normal. For example, crying for no reason, suicidal thoughts, or just wanting to go to a better place than this world, but I know I would never go through with it because my family would suffer. I recently told my mom some of these things, and she said, oh, it's probably your period, you're normal and perfect. I feel not heard, dumb, and that she must be right because the next week I get my period. That's just a coincidence. My brother's a drug addict and alcoholic. Of course, with that comes a load of emotional abuse. He's currently living on the streets, and I feel guilty because of that. He's not your child. You should not feel guilty. doesn't mean you can't feel pain about it, but um, you can't save him. You didn't create him. Uh, you can't control him, and, uh, and you certainly can't save him. Uh, whenever he is home, he manipulates me and my mom. He is constant look, constantly looking for a way to trick us into thinking that this time it's different and he's going to change. He has been in jail over four times and in and out of our house for years. He's only 20. I just keep thinking, when is this ever going to stop? I've been dealing with this since I was in third grade. My parents are both in 12-step programs and I have been in uh, Alateen for almost three years. Words cannot describe how many things my program has brought me. I also see a professional counselor for addictions, which has been helping a lot. I feel like I'm doing the things I need to do, uh, just my parents aren't as much. It's hard to let go and accept that. And yeah, you know, just because somebody is in a support group doesn't mean they're doing the work uh, to do it. So... Uh, that that is suggested of them. So don't ever judge anybody as being a, and that's why a lot of 12-step programs, all 12-step programs, uh, ask for uh, personal anonymity uh, at, in the in the public media uh, because they don't want people portraying them as speaking for that support group because people are fallible and um, and it's great that you're you're going to uh, to Alateen. That's that's really good and. Um, you know, for instance, uh, the the what you call it, the anonymity thing. If uh, I I would not use her uh, real name on this if I was identifying somebody being in um, a twelve step program. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Uh, obviously, it's very hard for me because they are my family. I will always love them. Me and my mom are close and have a lot of laughs. When me and my dad get along, it's great. We like to tease my mom on the funny things she does. My favorite thing me and my dad do is give random give random people names on the street while driving by. 
And that's one of the things that's so hard about um, a sick relationship with somebody is there's oftentimes a good part to that relationship, and it's such a mind fuck. Uh, darkest thoughts. I have uh, suicidal thoughts. My brain pictures paints a picture of what might happen when my family finds me lying on the floor dead. I hate it, and those thoughts haunt me whenever things get really bad and I get anxious. Also, I have a weird schoolgirl fantasy with teachers that makes me feel dirty and disgusting that someone my age would even think about it. You know, it's probably your brain's way of uh, of wanting um, an adult male in your life to um, feel safe with. And, and you're just sexualizing it because you were sexualized as a kid and you're being sexualized right now. Uh, darkest secrets. I have a lot of guilt so to just name a few, watching porn, reading my mom's journal when I was little, having dreams of being raped, talking sexually to strange people on the internet, uh, that I might have an overeating problem. I used to cut myself on my thigh with the end of a bobby pin. I tried forcing myself to throw up and many others, but I'm getting anxious even writing them all down. And that's as, as much as she filled out on the survey. But I, I wanted to read this to... to um, uh, let her know that both of her parents are failing her. And of course, of course, she's going to feel overwhelmed. Of course, uh, you know, you're not having any tools for coping with feelings being modeled for you. And, and when you do express your feelings, they're being minimized by saying, oh, you're probably getting your period. What, what child or adolescent would not uh, be struggling, would not be acting out would would not be you know doing the things that you're doing um you are okay you, but you are not in an okay environment and um just keep getting that help and um you know before you know it you'll be 18 and your ch- your choices will be uh a lot wider as to how you can handle your family but hang in there hang in there This is an awful moment filled out by Popcorn Ninja. She's in her 30s, and she writes, My grandfather passed away two days ago. As my family and I were waiting for the funeral home to come pick up his body, my dad and I got some snacks. We'd been there for several hours. I had a surreal moment when the funeral home rolled my grandfather's dead body past me as I was munching on popcorn because I suddenly felt like I was watching some macabre movie. I turned to my dad, who was also eating popcorn, and pointed it out. And all we could do was laugh. When we pointed it out to the rest of the family, they couldn't help but laugh either. It broke the sadness for at least a moment. I was so tempted to write a review of uh, the movie of your uh, grandfather's body, but I didn't get around to doing it. Um, This is an email I got from um, a woman who, how did she want to be referred to? Um, I'll just call her A because I can't remember how she wanted to be referred to. But um, she writes, you read a survey by someone who said they wanted to be fucked by a reptile and felt gross about it. Uh, I just wanted to tell you and them that there's a whole community of people out there that dig that. Uh, We're called furries and the ones that like dragons and crocodiles are uh, called scalies. 
We don't want to have sex with real animals, but we definitely like dressing up and getting it on as hulking great dragons and little fluffy foxes. Not all of us are into the sex part. That's called yiff. Y-I-F-F, but there's so many who are. This person can totally find someone who is kinky and crazy among the furs. Fur Affinity is a good website to start at, and that's spelled F-U-R-A-F-F-I-N-I-T-Y. If you get the chance, shout out to that person. They're not fucked up at all. They're just one of us, exclamation point. Thank you for that. This is a shame and circ... Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself um, overeater of my own emotions. He's in his 20s. Uh, he's gay. He was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. And when having a sleepover at a friend's house when I was seven or eight, his older brother, who was 11, I believe, would come into the room and sleep on the floor with us. He would play a game where he would reach over and grab our penis and he and his brother would laugh. I would laugh, too, because I didn't know what else to do. I always felt too feminine for a boy and clung to anything that would make me, quote, one of the guys. Um, He's been emotionally abused. He writes, growing up, both my parents would body shame me. My mom would constantly make comments about my weight, sometimes asking me to suck in my gut so I would look skinnier. My dad would periodically poke my chest and point out that I have lovely man tits. Jesus Christ. I also had a boyfriend for five years who would do his best to ensure that I kept the lowest self-esteem possible. Each time I came home from work and took off my coat, he would respond with, Ew. Just unbelievable. Any positive experiences with these people? Yes, I love my parents very much, but I've moved a couple hours away and don't see them often. So I think they guard some of their criticisms in fear that they won't get to see me for a few months if I'm upset. That's awesome. That's called consequences. That, you know, that is, that's some, uh, that's some quasi boundary setting right there. Uh, what are your deepest, darkest thoughts? Attacking my father with a metal bat. Why do you got to go metal? Why can't, wood's not good enough for you? Um, I say you use a wood bat and you put a donut on it too, just to have a little extra, a little extra weight. I don't want to kill him, but I want to hurt him physically the way he hurt me mentally over the years. This thought uh, doesn't happen all the time. Darkest secrets. When I was a teenager, I would peep in my friend's, uh, not the one I mentioned above, um, window to watch him dress and masturbate. I've also spied on his father showering. I didn't know what to do with the fact that I was gay and didn't want anyone to know, but I didn't have any outlet for my feelings. I no longer do this, thank God. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Touching a sexual partner while they are passed out drunk, where they won't judge me for my weird fascination with their nipples. I could never bring myself to do this in real life because I see it as a form of rape and having it as a turn-on makes me feel like complete utter shit you know as i say all the time on the podcast you know if it's just a fantasy and you're just masturbating to it or you're acting it out with a consenting adult it's all good um what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to i'm true i'm truly not as comfortable or as happy as they see me i'm always cracking jokes and being witty and sarcastic but inside i'm screaming to be taken seriously They never tell you growing up that the monsters that you are so scared of don't actually live under the bed. They live in your head and will fuck you up worse than anything else. Wow. Wow. So true. 
What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that I were skinnier, healthier, happier. I'd give almost anything to just be happy with myself. I could tell you this much. You could get skinnier, but those that pain and those wounds are still going to be there unless you process them with somebody, you know, support group or therapist or something. Um, have you shared these things with others? No, I could never tell people how completely fucked up I am in the head. I barely survived coming out of the closet. I can't risk it. I'm even worried about talking to my husband about wanting to see a therapist by myself. I fear he'd feel betrayed that I hadn't told him about these thoughts. Um, that might be a good way for you to set boundaries, though, with your partner and say, "You're, we are separate people. I love you and I'm committed to you, but um, are, these are my issues and, you know, Couples also deserve privacy, and you deserve that privacy. You deserve to have your own process and uh, to heal however you want to heal. And um, I think that that would be a great first step for you. And I think you would thrive in in therapy because you seem like a really sweet, introspective um, guy who was really fucking emotionally abused, really fucking emotionally abused. Um, have, uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? Good, just good. Putting it out in the universe of, to a community of others who are fucked up and will understand. Just have to hit that scary done button at the bottom. Hmm. <laughs> uh, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? That you're not as alone as I felt I was before I found this podcast. That's so nice. That's so nice. Thank you for that. And I hope you get the help you deserve because you are you are worth it. This is an email that I got from, uh, I'll call him A because I, again, I don't know um, how he wanted to be referred to. I noted it somewhere, but um, he writes, Quick question, if you don't mind. If someone in your family informed you that they are intentionally defaulting on credit card payments and cash advance loans because it's, quote, just too hard to keep up, how obligated would you feel to help them out? And, you know, my thoughts on that is the first thing to ask yourself is, is that person doing everything that they, in their power to pay those bills? And if they are not, the answer, and this is just my experience and my opinion, the answer is a definite no, because you might be enabling somebody who is feeding some type of addiction or just needs to, to have more structure in their life. Um, if the answer is yes, they're doing everything, then it's a maybe, and I, and I think it depends on the person. I, as a general rule, um, don't give uh, people money uh, unless it's something like they were in a terrible car accident, you know, they came down with a, a terrible illness or something like that. Because for some people, their life needs to to reach a point where something is not working for them to change the way that they're going about about something. So, you know, it's really kind of a case-by-case case thing. But when I first got sober, I lent a lot of people a lot of money, and it was a huge mistake because... Um, it's very few people paid me back. Then I got resentments 
at them. And then I eventually had to say, you know, what's my part in this? And my part in it is I was trying to save people. And some of those people, uh, you know, went out and used drugs again. And I didn't then do them any favors by uh, minimizing the repercussions of them uh, having gotten loaded before. Because in their mind, they were like, oh, I'll just find somebody to, you know, pay off my car getting towed and et cetera, et cetera. So it's uh it can be really complicated but listen to your uh listen to your gut and doing something out of guilt is is usually not a healthy choice this is from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by frisk and frisk is non-binary and pansexual and about their anorexia eating reminds me that i am occupying a physical form that others will be able to pass pass harsh judgment onto at their leisure about their OCD. My OCD makes me feel like every day is Friday the 13th and I've just stepped on every crack, broken 40 mirrors, and knocked over 100 salt shakers. That's a good one. About their autism. I'm a starving lion at the circus, regularly whipped and denied affection until I perform correctly for the masses. Um about their cutting. The pearls of blood that erupt under the knife as it slices across my skin remind me that there are gems inside of me and that if I can just break through the surface, I'll be able to take them back from the insatiable dragon hoarding them in the darkest corner of my mind. Wow, that is that is profound. Um, and also the title of a Fiona Apple album. Uh, a snapshot from from their life. Uh, for me, happiness is stinging cuts on my upper arms and cigarette smoke replacing food in my stomach. I love walking down the city streets knowing I have these secrets hidden away from the woman who controls every aspect of my life. Mother has never seen my scars, nor has she noticed the smokes I steal from her. These secrets are the only things keeping my head above water these days. I can't help feeling that I'm a modern Norman Bates. I hope you open up to somebody frisk i hope you do because it feels even better than having secrets it really does but i understand you know when i used to uh smoke weed when i was 15 years old and i go into the bathroom in our house you know and i take a hit and i blow it into the towel and then i'd spray something to cover the smell up half of the high was that i was getting away with something because it made me feel clever and powerful but um it's nothing compared to the feeling of feeling vulnerable and connected to people and um, and then being able to share my story with other people and help them and feeling meaning and purpose and that's that's there for you if you if you open up and then you can still have other secrets um, this is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by pug fight and she writes about uh, her depression i feel like i'm running a marathon through tar eventually i will hit the finish line only to wake up and realize i'm still in bed about her ocd i have a buck 25 in my pocket and i know this but i still have to fondle it repeatedly and count it repeatedly i have to or else the money will change and it will be less and it will be less when i need to use it um Snapshot from her life, crying in the bathroom and listening to my doggies crying on the other side of the door. They know. I'm ready to explode. I punch myself in the face. There's nothing more satisfying than ringing my own bell until I do it. Thank you for sharing that. Wow, that's such a vivid image. 
That is such a vivid, vivid image. And, and that weird disconnect between when you're sobbing and your dog is wagging its tail, you know, or licking your tears. Um, that usually, that usually, uh, then brings me into some type of laughter, but this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Astro Psycho, and um, she's 19. She's bisexual. She was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, she writes, hippie parents who never stayed in one place long enough to make friends. Total isolation aside from them and my sisters until my teenage years. Uh, she was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. Never reported it. Um, I was repeatedly molested by a neighbor who also molested my sister. She doesn't know I was also molested and we've never talked about it. She hates me and I feel like she'll hate me more if we talk about it. I was also molested by a family friend at a party which triggered a crippling fear of being in crowded spaces or around more than 10 people. It's getting better but I still have a hard time doing simple things like going to the grocery store. This is the second time I've ever written anything about this and I've never spoken about it out loud. I'm scared that if I speak with my partner about this, he won't care because he's been with girls who have suffered sexual abuse before and my story isn't as sad or interesting. To which I say, it's not a competition and if your partner can't support you in that, get the fuck out of there because they don't deserve you. You deserve... You deserve a partner who is supportive. You 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 need a partner is who is supportive to deal with that kind of heavy stuff. And with the right partner, things like that can bring you even closer together. It can build a foundation that that or add to the foundation of your relationship because you'll feel loved, because you will be vulnerable and your vulnerability will be rewarded with something that builds trust and that's that's one of the cornerstones of a of a relationship um you ever been physically or emo and and you know what i'm not a therapist uh but i did cook uh chili dogs while tom cruise was bartending have you ever been physically or emotionally abused? If you're comfortable sharing, uh, what happened? I'm not sure. When I was young, my mother told me about how lucky my sisters and I were because of how hard her life was growing up and would bring it up whenever we were upset. Once she also decided to tell me about how little girls in Africa were raped by grown men who thought they would cure their AIDS, so I really didn't have it that bad. I think about this whenever I feel bad to this day. That is a really, really mean thing for a mom to say to a kid. Um, you know, it's it's just another example of, of making it about uh, invalidating something by putting it into a contest. It, pain is not a contest. Uh, any positive experiences with the abusers? I didn't really know the two men who hurt me, but no matter how much my mother and I fought, she never said anything about me uh, stealing books from the shelves. Darkest thoughts. I think about buying a plane ticket and going someplace far away all the time. I love my boyfriend and our newborn daughter with all my heart, but I've always wanted something more than to be stuck in the middle of nowhere and do the traditional housewife thing with my high school sweetheart. I'm paranoid that somehow he'll hear or read this and know what a bad person I am and no longer love me. Why are you a bad person? Why are you, I, 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 
Darkest Secrets. I nearly constantly Facebook stalk people who I feel have wronged me and search through my boyfriend's phone to make sure uh, he's cheating. To make sure he's cheating? Don't you mean to make sure he's not cheating? Uh, I don't know why I do it. I know it's wrong and paranoid, but I can't stop. I've been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, and I don't know if that's right or not, but I do know I'm fucked up. And no, it's not right to um, to do that. Um, but, you know, people in pain, if they haven't learned tools to cope with their overwhelming emotions, that's what we do. You know, that's what we do. But that doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means that you you haven't developed tools yet. And, um, you know, uh, maybe get some... uh, some DBT therapy with some with a, a therapist who understands borderline personality disorder. I hear great things about it's called dialectical uh, behavior uh, training. I believe that's what it's called. Um, but it was it w- was invented by a woman, uh, Marsha Linehan, who herself uh, has borderline personality disorder. And um, people says it really really helps. Uh, This is a happy moment filled out by Earl, and he writes, That moment during winter when you suddenly notice that everything is a little too quiet. You get up from whatever you're doing and walk to the door, open it, and it's snowing so hard you can barely see to the end of your driveway. Just thinking about it now is putting a huge, goofy smile on my face. That made me feel so warm and nostalgic for those, those big snows, especially you know, like in November or December when it catches you by surprise and just everything is so pure and white and quiet. Yeah. Thanks for that, Earl. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Wistful Fucker, and he's in his 30s, about his depression. He is bipolar, too. He writes, you're so great. Love me. I hate this. Why are you here? Um about his sex addiction. Nothing makes life easier than jerking off and fantasizing about you and that girl I stared at early or stared at earlier. Um, about being a sex crime victim. He touched me and then made me feel like uh, I was gay for being touched. Uh, snapshot from his life. Last night my girlfriend asked me for sex for the 20th time since we started dating three months ago. She's beautiful and sexy and yet I can't stand when she touches me except when I'm so horny. Uh, I think about it all day. I I gotta say, uh, not a therapist, but that's a hallmark of somebody who was sexually abused is um, if you haven't listened to the episodes, um, uh, the episode with uh, Sarah Goodson, that's a good one. That's a good one to listen to for this. There's a lot of them uh, about this, but uh, I too had had that for a long time and can still can still get that. Um, so maybe it's something you can work through with uh, with a therapist. This is filled out by Nate. It's a shame and secret survey, and he is in his twenties. He was raised in a pretty pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, he's gay. Uh, ever been in the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. Uh, from 10 to 15, uh, I've had sex with our village's doctor. It started as abuse, but with time it became normal, like we were in a relationship. At first I hated it, and he blackmailed me and said he was going to tell my parents that I was smoking if I didn't come back. So I kept coming back to him. 
Uh, after some time, I realized that I would be going to him anyway. He didn't have to force me anymore. I still hated what he was doing to me, but I don't know. I was addicted to him, to his care, and I wanted to be with him. He's also been physically and emotionally abused. My dad was violent with my mom, essentially, uh, but also with me. He always found a reason to beat me, no matter what I did. I think I was also emotionally abused. The doctor kept uh, telling me that I was uh, to be a gay bottom, that my dick was too small and I would never be able to have sex with a woman or with a man as a top. It registered in my mind because I believed him. I still do. That is one sick motherfucker. That is one really, really sick motherfucker. Um, any positive experiences with the abuser? The doctor loved me and cared about me better than my parents. Now, the doctor pretended to love you better than your parents, but that was all a part of him getting what he, what he wanted. And I'm sorry to say that if you're listening to this, um, but it's so easy to for a sex abuse victim to have it rewired in their brain that love is um, sex. Um, not that sex and love can't go together, but it's it's you know what I mean. I don't need to explain myself. Um, darkest secrets. I'd like to be ten again and go back to him. That's very common. I've experienced that too. I've experienced sexual fantasies about, you know, wanting to be, um, go back to a situation, um, you know, when I was 10 or 11 and, um, and re experience it, but with, you know, a person other than uh, the person who it was. Uh, darkest secrets i'm a gay submissive and i like older dominant men it's the result of what the doctor did to me i accept what i am but i know that i would be entirely different if that hadn't happened to me thank you for filling that's all that nate filled out but buddy i just want to send you a hug and um beg you to go get some help because you deserve it because you have been through just such a mind fuck, such a total mind fuck, and nobody that you could turn to. And the world is filled with people that you can turn to now. And um, you are not who that sick person says that you are. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself the sun shines out of Herbert's butthole. It does. It does. Um, and when he farts and his asshole puckers, it's kind of like an eclipse. Um, we all, we all, uh, the neighbors come over and we gather together and then we look at his butthole through a box that has mirrors in it so we don't hurt our eyes. <laughs> Might be the dumbest or the funniest things I've, I've ever said. Um, about his, uh, or about her PTSD, she writes, it's like seeing lightning strike nearby and tensing up waiting for the thunder forever. That's a great one. About her autism, uh, she writes, just diagnosed at age 34. I have a script in my head for every social situation, but it's still like walking blindfolded on the edge of a precipice every time I go out amongst other people. Soon, I'll fail to my social death for the millionth time, and then I'll have no choice but to straighten my blindfold and get back on that cliff top. Snapshot from her life. Um, 
When my ex and I broke up, we stayed, quote, friends. And when he started going out with another friend of ours a few weeks later, he asked me, please don't make it weird. I wanted to scream at him, but I thought I was overreacting. So instead, I agreed to go out to dinner with them both, where we laughed and traded cat memes. I felt fine when I left, but by the time I got to the car park, I wanted to slit my wrists with my keys. Thank God I've had no contact with him for 10 weeks now. Good for you. Keep that keep that no contact if that... Uh, if that feels healthy, which I think it does, because he he um, he doesn't sound like he understands what you might be feeling. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by Natalie, and uh, she writes: Last night I cuffed my husband to the bed for the first time. Before I met him, I had been sexually manipulated by my older sister and most of my partners. Unfortunately, I've carried into our marriage a fear of abandonment and the compulsion to cater to all of his sexual preferences, even when I'm uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. Even though we've been married for seven years, last night was the first time in my life I was able to fully express my sexual personality and feel 100% in control. I wish we'd bought restraints sooner. Thank you for that. That's awesome. I love seeing people embrace their sexuality uh, without guilt you know, when it's not hurting anybody. Um, this is uh, from the uh, first day in therapy. This was filled out by a guy who's under 18. They don't, people don't give names on this one. This uh, survey was created by my friend Katie, who's a, who's a therapist. Uh, he's under 18, and uh, he writes, and he's a client, he writes, uh, I feel like it was a massive buildup. I wanted help way before but uh, was made to feel it wouldn't benefit me from my mother. Her and I were abused by my father. Meanwhile, I was bullied at school. But even when I thought I was at my all-time low at 13, my mother passed away. Oh, my God. I was devastated, and I felt I had no one. Then I started coming out of the closet as transgender and pansexual. That resulted in worse treatment. Even then, I kept it all inside, and it only made things worse as I tried to find ways to cope. Three days after my 17th birthday, I tried to commit suicide. I told myself then, I can't do this on my own, and I can't trust anyone to talk. I'm extremely nervous when it comes to people. I finally told someone I needed that sort of help. Uh, any fears associated with starting therapy? I was afraid I would be dismissed, like I'm this blue-haired kid who is suffering, and I thought to myself, oh, what a cliche. They're going to just roll their eyes at you and send you home. It's all in your head. You're stupid. Then I also was afraid to actually talk about all these emotions, letting someone in. It made me a nervous wreck. Did any of these fears come true? I actually saw two therapists since then. I think the first one wasn't as judgmental and dismissive as I had played out in my head. She was very kind, but I was, in fact, terrified. And it hurt really bad to speak about why I'm there in the first place. My second therapist, who is also my current, is actually blind. She couldn't judge me on how I looked. My fourth visit with her, I actually told her that I was different in that way, the blue hair, piercings, etc. She seemed kind of shocked, which uh, is a Christian-type therapy, um, which I wasn't aware about before. So I can't bring myself to talk about my coming out. And that's why I wanted to read this one, because you deserve somebody who isn't going to judge you for your coming out. Or maybe come out to her, and um, she won't judge you, and you'll be able to continue along with her. But if you bring it up and she tries to change you, uh, get the fuck out of there because that is abuse. That is abuse. Uh, 
But thank you for filling that out. This is an email I got from a woman who calls herself Carly. And she's 24 years old. She writes, I've been in therapy for five years now and currently seeing an individual therapist, a psychiatrist, and I'm in, in trauma process group. I also started EMDR. I'm pretty excited about it. I sometimes joke that therapy is my life right now. It's what I look forward to each week. And it's teaching me so much about myself, my environment, and how to relate to others. I worry and am embarrassed sometimes about this idea, uh, however, that therapy is my life. I'm at this strange place in life right now where I feel as though I'm developing emotionally at an exponential rate because of therapy, but worry that I depend too much on my therapists, my meds, and the individuals in my group. I wonder sometimes if I am just mindlessly wandering through this never-ending support network, completely disconnected from it all, dissociating from my body and the therapeutic experience, and sucking the life out of those who are trying to help me. Um, I'm in the midst of making a true effort to turn my life around and love myself, but this shit is hard and life still feels muted a lot of the time. I know that I've progressed emotionally in the last several years, but I feel like I am still nowhere close to loving myself. In fact, I hate myself so much. I avoid looking in the mirror because I am simultaneously unable to recognize the reflection staring back at me and I'm disgusted by my appearance. Lately, I've just wanted to hurt myself every time I'm in front of a mirror. The self-injurious uh, behavior is a brand new thing for me, and I'm not sure why it's just now presenting itself. I burn my hips with the embers from blown-out matches and punch myself, usually. This past week, I've been able to fight off the urges by gripping ice cubes in my hands. I'm trying my best to be proud of myself for this replacement coping mechanism. It is so difficult to be proud of myself. Uh, I worry that in five years I'll be in the same spot emotionally or be worse than I am now. There goes Carly claiming therapy is still helping her or whatever. She's too self-absorbed to see beyond herself. Look at her. She's married to a great dude and plays roller derby but is still miserable. Get over it already. I have a really shit, shitty inner voice. I know that this journey to recovery will never end, but shit, some inner peace would be so fucking nice and some love for myself. And I just wanted to say that, for one, that is just your mean inner DJ voice talking to you, and you are fucking awesome. You're growing, and the self-harm, you know what? A lot of recovery is two steps forward and one step back, and uh, you know, when I started to heal from um, experiencing incest, I was overwhelmed by sadness and pain, and I turned to, to acting out in pornography a lot of times, and it wasn't the right solution, but... I guess at the time, I felt it's what I needed to survive, to, to numb the pain. And as I've uh, healed and begun to love myself, or at least accept myself, um, I don't feel the need to, to do that. But I had to let my support group love me until I could no longer think that they were being phony. And I eventually realized, you know what, I might be lovable. And I had to let go of the shame about my past uh, to let that self-hatred begin to fade away. And by sharing my shame, and seeing that they still loved me, I realized that I am not my past. My past is how I coped without tools. That's it. I have tools today. And so do you. And you're starting to use them. And you should be fucking high-fiving yourself and fuck that negative voice in your head. Easy, Paul. This is uh, from the therapy survey. Uh, this is 
a woman, and uh, she's between 18 and 25, and her issues were depression, anxiety, and thoughts of self-harm slash suicide. Fears associated with starting therapy, that my therapist would tell others what I'd said in confidence, being forced into hospitalization, or worse, not being taken seriously because I was not able to describe what I was feeling well enough. Did any of these fears come true? The last one, sort of. It wasn't that I wasn't being taken seriously, but I did have trouble putting my experiences into words. So many of us do. I I didn't even, for the first years of therapy, I didn't even know what I was feeling. I would get so angry or at least annoyed when my therapist would say, what are you feeling right now? And I would say, well, you know, I'm just thinking about, she would say, I didn't ask what you're thinking. I asked what you're feeling. And I didn't know. I didn't know. So how can you, you even be, begin to describe it? Because uh, for a lot of us, are we just shut down emotionally. That's how we survived. So um, what worked best for you in therapy? Having a place to talk without feeling like I was dumping my issues on someone who didn't want to hear them was nice. And it was helpful to have someone to celebrate the small victories with, especially someone who understood the effort that went into them. Um, Do you feel you can be completely honest with your therapist? I have a really hard time talking about suicidal thoughts with therapists. I get scared that they'll just lock me up if I even breathe a word about them so I don't mention them. I know therapists want you to be safe, but at the same time, I don't want to get jumped on for having a normal symptom of the depression. I'm already here to get help for. Just because I'm thinking about it doesn't mean I'm in any real danger. Well, I, I, I've talked about my suicidal thoughts with my uh, therapist, and uh, they will always ask, are you making a plan? Uh, to which I say no, because I'm not. And they say, okay. So, um, I think if you preface it by, I'm not making any plans, I don't don't intend to do it, but it's just something that is going through my brain a lot, I think that that is a safe way. And any good therapist will um, recognize that that is not cause to um, have somebody committed. This is a shame and secret survey, and I'm just going to read a couple of excerpts from this. This was filled out by book nerd Jen, and... um, She's bisexual in her 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. And um, she experienced uh, some sexual abuse, kind of gray area that she shared in another uh, survey. So she didn't fill it out here. Um, She's been emotionally abused. She writes, "Um, no physical, but some emotional abuse. My boyfriend's father died when we were in our early 20s and he got very depressed. For about six months, Uh, He took his frustration out on me. He talked down to me, downplayed my intelligence, and ignored me when I would point it out. He told me I was taking what he was saying wrong or I was too sensitive. One day we were at at his mother's house and he made a very dismissive remark to me. To my shock and his, his mother stood up and said in a very calm but serious tone, she is your girlfriend. In my house, you will show her the utmost respect and talk to her like she deserves to be talked to. If you can't, you can leave my house. I won't see my son behave like that. It was exactly what I was waiting for. He truly did not realize what he was doing, and it took someone on the outside to make him see. I just couldn't bring myself to tell someone else because I knew uh, it wasn't him, and he would feel awful once he saw it. 
After that day, his depression improved, and I saw how much he loved me again for the first time in months. He never apologized, most likely out of embarrassment and shame, but his actions screamed he was sorry. He is now my husband, and that crazy woman is my mother-in-law. That's so awesome. That is so awesome. Uh, she also, uh, her, her secret is uh, that nobody but my husband knows I'm bisexual. He's very supportive and tells me to never be ashamed of it. And she says, I wish I could come out as bisexual to my friends and family. I just don't feel ready for that judgment yet, uh, Catholic family. Uh, I wish society would move past all these dumb social issues of, uh, like uh, homosexuality and mental illness. So many people endure so much emotional pain for just being who they are. Or people could stop thinking mental illness is a disease of willpower. Uh, if they would do that, we would make so much progress. There was a shooting in my city a few months ago, and all I could think was what pain that guy was going through when he felt uh, he had to just deal with it. Uh, he felt like he he had to just deal with it. People are afraid of Muslims. I'm not. I'm afraid of confused, righteous, mentally tortured white men. Uh, at first, I thought that, that that was pointed at me, uh, and then I realized that she didn't include self-hating and plump. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? It's weird to put the story out there, but it's surprisingly cathartic. I don't know if it even still bothered me until I was writing it. That's the power of, of journaling, which is essentially is what the surveys are um sometimes you don't know what it is you're thinking or feeling until you start writing it and i think because you, you have to slow it down um and process it to put it into words this is a happy moment filled out by just keep swimming and she writes i'm in a long distance relationship in which i live in la and my boyfriend lives in northern california so i drive uh on the i5 about one to two times per month while listening to your podcast, I might add. Anyway, the divider of the opposing roads is mostly grass and weeds, but in the summertime, hundreds of thousands of wild sunflowers start sprouting up in the middle of the freeway. They are just a happy reminder that if a flower can grow in harsh conditions, so can I. I love that. Thank you for that. I take that drive too sometimes and all I think of is there's no divider, I'm going to die in a head-on collision. And then I just uh, mull that thought over and over again until I get to the divider. I think that's healthy. This is another of the surveys and I just wanted to read. This is filled out by a guy who's uh, between 36 and 50 and um, he writes uh, to the question, do you feel you can be completely honest with your therapist? I lived in terror of her saying something that would kill me. Now I realize I couldn't tolerate someone using a caring voice. Now I just want to let her. Seven years in, we are working on it. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. This was also from that survey filled out by a guy who's between 26 and 35. And... Um, his issues that brought him in, uh, he writes, uh, I am transgendered, uh, female to male. I need a letter from a therapist saying I'm not crazy so that insurance might cover for me to get chest reconstruction surgery to have a male chest. I also have anxiety and ADHD. Uh, any fears associated with starting therapy. The therapist I have currently is the only therapist I've ever meshed with. Therapists tend to have that soothing therapy therapist voice that I hate. I was afraid I'd find another one of those. Did your fears come true? No. 
what works best for you in therapy. Being completely honest for once and not holding back. A fucking man. Man, that is the word. You talk about getting banged for your buck. Let loose. Um, what were your initial impressions of your therapist? That she's great. Uh, do you feel you can com- be completely honest? We kind of answered that. I can be completely honest with my therapist. She speaks my language. She swears. It's like she she could be one of my friends. It's awesome. Um, I didn't realize I had so many. The, the stack of surveys didn't feel that thick when I started, but... Um, this... This is... Um, that same survey, this is filled up by a woman who is um, taking the, the survey as a therapist and as a client. And she's between 26 and 35. And what brought you to therapy? I was forced into and threatened into uh, sharing with my mom that I had reduced my caloric intake to roughly 300 to 500 per day the summer after my, after my freshman year of college. She then, after a weekend of extensive research into the measures that needed to be taken, drove me to my first therapy session while simultaneously trying to convince me that I would be able to stop this behavior with food. Oh, my God. What brought me to this field of work? It was about six months after the aforementioned story that I asked to be admitted to a hospital because I could no longer endure the psychiatric and anorexic bulimic symptoms that had taken over my life. I wanted to kill myself. I was planning to OD on Xanax and Lunesta when I woke up, metaphorically, finally, and realized I could live my life differently. About 60 days into inpatient treatment, one of the primary therapists at the treatment center shared her experience, strength, and hope, uh, beginning in eating disorder treatment. She inspired me. I wanted to give others the hope she gave me. Therein, I became a therapist. Do you have any fears starting therapy? As a client, I was too numb at the time to be fearful. I was annoyed as fuck that my mom thought she could bring me to talk to someone that would, quote, cure me. As a therapist, the fear was that I would never be capable of being as supportive, loving, wise, and nurturing as my therapists have been for me. Did any of your fears come true? As the client, I was right. I can never be cured. I can continue to gain insight into my anorexic, overly indulgent behavior with food and sex. My symptoms no longer dictate my life, and I do go months without using behaviors, but the thought The thoughts are always lurking beneath the surface waiting to come and eat me alive. I don't think I'll ever be beyond the struggle and at this point I don't wish to rid myself of what has given me so many insights, gifts, and truly honest and loving friendships. But to some effect it did come true. Uh, As a therapist, my fear of being inadequate is the same as my clients. I can connect and support them effectively and lovingly. My fears with that did not come true. What works best for you um, as a client? Having a holding environment in which the therapist could provide me unconditional love and acceptance and continued insight, accountability, and support. Also having a pseudo-mother figure as a therapist, very healing and powerful, given my mother was less than adequate as a parent. What were your initial impressions of your therapist? As a client, my initial impressions of my longest-term therapist were that they were at ease, peaceful, and evolved. I felt accepted and comfortable right off the bat, as if I had just found uh, a therapist that fit like a glove. 
The unsettling parts of therapy for me have been feeling manipulated and used because I have to pay for this person to care about me. As a therapist, I have had to, uh, and my license depends on these reports, make one child abuse report uh, that I have the shittiest feelings about. My first session with a 15-year-old boy, I found out he had been spending unsupervised time with his perpetrator. His perpetrator was his father, who had digitally raped him chronically before the age of five, and this father signed away his parental rights when he was four years old. Filing this report opened up a shitstorm, and I still struggle to build rapport with this client months later. His case is now getting reopened with DCFS, and the state wants to remove him from his current caregiver. It's nonstop trauma for everyone involved. I feel responsible. It sucks ass. I know it's not my fault and I did my job, but man, I wish this job could be easier sometimes. Um, I just want to high five you um, because you are in the trenches. You are doing the hard work on the front lines of battling mental illness. And you guys do it nine to five, five days a week. And as you'll share in this next paragraph, you take it home with you. Uh, it's impossible to leave your work at the office. I'm not fatigued by my compassion because I have boundaries about answering and returning phone calls and emails. Initially, I wanted to return them 24-7, but eventually I realized I wanted to have a laugh of my own too. I think she meant life and that probably got switched. Uh, I love my job and my clients. Oh, P.S. Two times per week therapy and daily power yoga help keep me sane and cared for. Ha ha. Uh, do you feel you can be completely honest with your therapist? No, I can't. I mean, I can. My therapist would be open and accepting of anything I told her, but fuck. Some of my sexuality and romantically compulsive behavior is just too fucking shameful to share with her. It rattles me to my shame core even thinking about it. I fucking hate myself for not sharing, but I'm human and I'm limited. And even though I'm a therapist, I'm also a client and I still have to work to do forever. I think my therapist could sit on the floor with me and play games with me like I'm a kid. That sounds weird, but I missed having a true youth, and I know that's what we need to do. Uh, insights for new therapists? Go to therapy. Insights for new clients? Trust the process. Thank you for that. That is such a great uh, survey. And, you know, as I was reading the part about you, you know, you haven't shared about your uh, acting out sexually and romantically. Is, is it that you're afraid that she's going to judge you or is it that you're afraid she's going to suggest that you go to a support group and you're going to know it's the right decision and you don't want to go to that support group? Just a thought. Just my two cents. This is a happy moment filled out by the uh, Jaybird of crappiness. And she writes, Early in my marriage of 17 years, I always felt like my husband was still hung up on his ex-girlfriend. We were out at breakfast one morning and we were talking about her. Ironically, she's my friend now. He said she was like watching fireworks. My heart sank. I wanted to be like fireworks. But he continued and said, But you're like the sun. You come out and warm everything you touch. That, my friends was a happy freaking moment. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. All right. I was going to read these next two struggle in the sentences, but are uh, shame and secret surveys, but I'm going to save them for another time and just read what we got 
Got a couple of happy moments and a happy email. This first uh, happy moment is filled out by Snot Rocket, and she writes, I have a lot of trouble letting myself feel happy or proud of my accomplishments because every time I feel really good about myself, I feel convinced that that means it's the triumphant final moment of my life and that I'm about to die. I'd never shared this with anyone before, but one day that fear came bubbling up and I started to cry. I told my significant other about this fear and he just held me and laid next to me as I cried. He told me I was allowed to be proud of myself. You are allowed to feel joy, he said with conviction. I felt so warm and comfortable in his arms, like he'd given me joy and created a space that was safe enough for me to revel. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for that. This is a bittersweet one, and this is filled out by Lucy, but you know I love the bittersweet happy moments. She writes, this is the first time I shared my pain with a friend. Uh, Oh, no, the first, she has two. The first is the first time I shared my pain with a friend. I hadn't been around much for a few months while I was depressed and suicidal and stuck in my head. My days had been a half-desperate fight for my life, and I think at this point I had just begun to achieve some amount of stability with medication and therapy. I alluded to the depression that must have at least implied the uh, the suicidality because she easily and casually responded, oh, like the time I took a whole bottle of pills? Because yes, she had been there too. Our stories were different, of course, but she understood my suffering and didn't reject me. I've been so afraid and hidden, and the relief was enormous. Uh, Because of this, I try to be as open and candid about my struggles as I can safely and appropriately to be. I hope that as hard as that is, it helps someone like she helped me. The second is similar, really just being seen and accepted. In the end, it was the first time I received a professional diagnosis for my borderline personality disorder. I had suspected for years uh, that something was wrong. Left and right, I was told that it's just hormones as a teen. I'm just too sensitive, moody, anxiety runs in the family. By the time I was 22, I was ready to die, cutting, abusing alcohol, abusing sex, wandering New York City, crying late at night alone, meeting men I met online in the park at 1 a.m. The one time I thought I was pregnant, completely unrealistically, I got as far as standing at the kitchen counter, holding the knife against my stomach I was going to use to quote, cut out the imaginary baby. Yes, even though I referred to it as imaginary, long story short, I ended up in the office of a psychiatrist who said, I see. I have experience with this. I understand. I know how to help, and we're going to do this together. Even if she had done nothing else, I'm convinced those words saved my life. Maybe bittersweet over happy, but I'll be 25 this month. I'm still here, and I'm getting better every day. Fuck, do I love reading stuff like that. And then this last one is an email I got from from Misty. And uh, she writes, you read an email from a listener who said they were beginning the process of getting into support groups because they've become convinced by your podcast that they, that they work. I've joined three in the last three weeks. Um, my first Al-Anon meeting was tonight. I walked into a 100-degree room and sat down 10 minutes before the meeting started. In that time, I met three of the members, had an offer of sponsorship, and felt safer than I have in possibly my adult life. 
As the meetings began and the 12 steps were read, I had an epic battle with tears. And I'm not a crier. I have a hard time feeling anything. I've heard you say on the podcast that you know when you found your people and that support groups have saved your life. In that moment, I knew that both were true. I found my people. I didn't share tonight. None of those people know anything about me but my name, but they've already saved me. Fuck! That's some good shit. That is some good shit. Well, thank you for... Uh, how long was this one? Oh my God, we hit the three-hour mark. Holy fuck. That was a big stack of surveys, and I didn't even read all of them. Anyway, um... 180 minutes, and we didn't even have to go to Herbert's butthole to stretch it out for time. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Um, I hope if you're struggling, you can take that plunge and ask for help. That's a terrible phrase to use. I hope if you're struggling, you take that plunge. (laughs) Oh, my God. That may be the worst fuck-up ever on the podcast. So you know I have to leave that in. I hope if you're struggling, you take that scary first step, uh, not off a ledge, and uh, open up to somebody and say those three powerful words that helped me, um, that saved my life. Please help me. Please help me. Um, Because help is out there. It's everywhere. There's good people everywhere. But you'll never know until you open up because they can't help you if they don't know what's going on with you. And um, just remember, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.